this episode of The Full Nerd, AMD versus Intel, Threadripper Pro 5000, and should I use Linux? Welcome to episode 225 of The Full Nerd. I'm your host, Gordon Mong, with special guest Wendell of Level 1 Techs. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And Adam Patrick Murray controlling the vertical and horizontal. Man, it's uh, great to have you here, Wendell. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We've, uh, we haven't had a chance to, to cross paths yet, but uh, I'm excited to have you on. A lot, a lot Allow of people... me to lower your expectations. No, no, no. no. When, when I announced it in our Discord, uh, people were like, hell yeah, Wendell's going to be here. Yay. So you're... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited just, to have you here. People are excited to commiserate because I've seen some amazing messes in my time. <laughs> what, what's your all-time goat? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, too hard to. It's do. A, it's it, it's a it's 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 a darkness. It's a real darkness. If you want to be exposed to some of the darkness, I did. Um, there's a video I did on a recovering data off of an NVMe or off of a, a solid state flash drive that had died spectacularly and it was just the management software the flash itself was fine so i reconstructed the drive by loading all of the raw nand into a relational database and then reconstructing it one lba sector at a time good lord (laughs) (laughs) like that's definitely something like you send i would like okay here's my here's my thousand dollars here's a drive give me you know that's the you know, oh, it would have cost a lot more than a thousand dollars to do that. <laughs> Shout out to the Fusion IO Discord for helping with that. Some of the original engineers that worked on it was were like, "You're doing what?" And I was like, "Yeah, we're just just gonna see what happens." And then we were successful. Did you? But did you then when you when you handed it all over? Did you say like, and? Can we discuss backups now? Yes. Or, yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. It was, it was, that was a whole other separate thing. So that was fun. Oh, God. Oh, backups are the worst thing. Backups are the worst thing. That's like. Back, they're always in a superposition of like, unless you observe them, they're not working. Yeah. I, what is it with backups and UPSs? Like, they never work. They never work. And they always let you down exactly when you need them. I don't. I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, yeah. I've had good luck with UPSs as long as I set a calendar entry on the day that I buy it to replace it in, you know, like a year or two. Yeah, that's, that's a good call, can't actually. They, yeah. But can't they make the stupid battery last longer than three years? You know, what? what's... You got to get the, uh, like, the cell tower. The cell tower UPSs are rated for about 10 years, but they're about two and a half times more expensive. And they're usually only rack mount, and they're usually only, like, 3,000 watts. Yeah, and they're not being sold at Costco, probably. <laughs> but... Always ready to die. Well, you know you, what you, doesn't you, let us down though? Oh, oh wait, you got. I was going to say, you know what is sold at Costco? Oh, no. Yeah. CPU sold at Costco? No. Oh, well, that would be mind. cool though. If they sold it. You know, I, the way the rate things are going, <laughs> you might be able to like be able to get like a four pack of CPUs at Costco. It feels like <laughs> or, 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 G, or GPUs. Yeah, <laughs> that would be nice. But uh, the topic I think that everybody really wants to talk about is AMD versus intel and obviously because we got ryzen 7000 coming in hot um they've even announced the launch for august 29th officially I august think, right? 29th that's correct 29th. we have an article over on on pcworld.com i'm looking at it right now and of course we know intel is coming out with 13th gen i actually saw a story i have not verified this but they said like apparently amd put their launch date to basically camp on intel's launch day as well mm. Interesting. 
I don't know if that's true, but I, it's 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 cheeky. I think it's it's kind of fun to do that stuff. But what? So what we know so far, what we publicly know so far, who 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 are you giving the edge? We're odds makers. We're the odds makers <laughs> in Vegas. People are coming here to to get that bet. They want to they want to put their four hundred dollars down on something. Who's going to win this this out the gate? Do you think on the top end, top end launch, top part? I mean the the leaks. I don't know. The leaks actually have made me uh, sort of question things even a little bit more because there have been leaks from both sides. And so you have to look at the leaks and it's, it's like, are we being played here? Are these leaks deliberate? I'm starting to think some of the leaks are are deliberate. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who has the edge at this point. I think Intel is going to end up with a CPU that consumes more power. It's going to probably be a higher wattage CPU for the uh, – for the enthusiasts and the overclocker. And, and, and AMD's already sort of shared what the new AM5 socket is going to have out the gate for CPU wattage and what it will be capable of long-term. That was a little bit of the snafu of a snafu in their messaging, if I remember correctly. So I think that just in terms of wattage, Intel's going to turn it up as far as they can, and so that might give Intel the edge. Right. And then, But, I mean, if AMD's stepping up quite a bit, it looked, I mean, yeah, you're right. That was like, what is a TDP? What is the TDP of those parts that that got really messy on the launch? But I think it was it was definitely turned up quite a bit over what we've seen from AM4, what yeah. one thirty up to what one eighty? I think is what it is. Yeah, I and I think that absolute socket maximum was like two twenty, and it's like, well, we've got some headroom for the future, something right. like that. So it sounds like so. both parts might just end up racing as as, yeah. as hard as they can go because they want to. And I guess that kind of matches all of the. The pre-announcements that we saw, sort of in that T- CES, uh, was it CES or maybe Computex timeframe, where they were they were really claiming really really high clocks, like five yeah. seven five eight, and AMD saying all core five gigahertz, right from their demo <laughs> video. Yeah, you, and you got to take stuff like that with a grain of salt too, because you can turn the wattage down. You know, right now on Alder Lake on the twelve nine hundred K, you can run it at sixty watts, and the CPU will tell you that it's running at five gigahertz. But there's a lot of clock stretching going on where it's not really accomplishing a lot in the hmm. clocks that it has. Really? What's- yeah, like, well, just the the power usage and and that kind of thing. The um, if you set the power limits kind of low, it seems like it's still clocking really high. But then if you do like a seven zip benchmark or a Cinebench or something like that, and you look at the plot of this, the, the clock speed, the clock speed looks like it's really high, but it doesn't actually perform quite as well. Is it the measuring tools then? I mean, cause I mean, one of the things the, the tools have not, cause the processors, the f- frequency changes so insanely fast that a lot of it, it's, you're just getting a pole of one point, right? Is that what you're I saying? I think it, I think it's probably not that. I think it's that there's so many clock domains inside the CPU that ever it's it's sort of non-deterministic. So like if you're doing an AVX workload, sometimes it's going to take, you know, 40 clocks to do this particular operation and sometimes it might take 45 or or 50 clocks. And the power management has just gotten so good that the clock domain that's running at 5 gigahertz is just way way off whatever other clock domain th- there is for the AVX side or for the, the whatever particular part of the CPU it is that you're asking to do something in the benchmark. Huh. And it is kind of one of those things where for me I've stopped chasing those rabbit holes where the only thing I kind of care about is what you get at the end. So yeah, the yeah. performance is what matters. You know, sometimes the architect. You know, sometimes like your brain can go numb on the architecture discussions and then the clock speeds and all these claims and the core counts. But 
for the average consumer, which is the, the crowd that uh, I mostly talk to, yeah, they just want to know what's faster and what, is it worth buying. So I sometimes I think it's cool to look at all the 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 deep dives on <laughs> the, the minutiae, the minutiae of it all. But I'm like, for the average consumer, it just kind of like goes over their head. But I I wonder, like, because I, I mean, the fact that they were talking up their clocks and all core clocks. It almost feels like that'll be like a, a primary marketing point. We're going to see the return of you know clock speeds, all core clocks, and then <laughs> clock for clock, five point eight, yeah. and it'll it'll feel like it's you know early two thousand again or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's that probably is coming. I think. Um, what about the okay? So with the twelve nine hundred K, not worrying about the minutia, there was a big one, and that was the whole PL one PL two K versus not K, and for the all core thing. That was a PL2 boost, and that seemed like it came at the last minute because there was a lot of motherboards out there that couldn't deliver the higher PL2 forever on, like, the 12900 or the 12900K. And so even if you weren't really super interested in the minutia and overclocking, if you got the K and you got a motherboard that could do PL2 forever and you had a cooling solution that would manage the thermals, the CPU is perfectly stable to turbo forever. And that was nice if you, you know, just want something that performs well, but you don't want to have to think about it. You can just turn on that and just let it go and it's fine. Yeah, I know. And you make a really good point because it, it, as much as the average person, it doesn't matter that much for somebody who's into it. I mean, there are real performance um, handcuffs if you don't buy the right hardware. Like some of those early boards just were not great, right? I kind of wonder, though, if that... And I don't know why the launches are so messy these days. I'm sure it's, be- I mean, you know, the yeah. combination of COVID and then uh, I think also the combination of like <laughs> you have competition and your bosses, you know, coming down to yell at you every, every week to make sure things come out faster, <laughs> but it just feels like things are so messy. I don't remember. Do you remember the Skylake X launch? Like nobody had any idea what the turbos were on that part at launch. It's like, what is going on here? You know? Oh man, uh, the messiest thing from that you could use registered error correcting memory on Skylake, and then you couldn't later on really? Skylake X. Yeah, they they took that out. I've got a seventy nine eighty XE with a gigabyte motherboard that has registered error correcting memory in it. And I cannot update the BIOS because guess what stops working? Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's actually, but I mean, so does it? Is it on on all the parts by accident? And then they just like, oh, let's remove that in the. In yeah, the I, it it was not anything they intentionally did i think it just happened to work and then people started putting you know 384 gigs of memory in skylake and then they were like oh let's let's turn that off <laughs> Oops. it's it's almost i mean i mean yeah there have been a lot of messy things here it's almost like the uh, uh the avx 512 with alder lake right some yeah have it, some don't yeah. and they yeah. did they actually really laser they they cut them off and later on they fuse them off laser on later on or is it yeah it doesn't there doesn't seem to be any way to activate them i've got a newer 12900k and cannot turn it on but i've got an older one and if, i've got the msi board that um if you go in bios there's an option that you turn on and it kills the e-cores and re-enables avx 512 it works with one physical cpu but not another huh. wow wow it's really really interesting i think that they thought that they were going to be able to fix the avx 512 thing in microcode and they're just like, ah, the software people will deal with that. And then it later was like, oh, crap, we can't. <laughs> there was a lot of confusion, too. I mean, they were just so, I don't know. Things just have gotten messy, more so on Intel than on AMD. But Intel def- or AMD is definitely, you know, can, can be some occasional kind of missteps. But definitely feels like a lot of these are 
on the Intel side as they're sort of catching up and getting up. Everybody notices like the USB issues. Like everybody still remembers the Skylake USB issues. It's like, oh, the USB is going to be all better now. And then it's like, oh, it's it's not. <laughs> well, I, I mean, first gen Ryzen had its uh, yeah, you yeah. Know, pr- yeah problems as well. So I, I think, you know, I, I do wonder if the next Ryzen 7000 new platform, do we expect some major teething problems there? DDR5 the time and time. get it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still there's it's a new platform. There's probably going to be issues. Just more time, more testing and more people's hands. Got to kind of dot the I's and cross the T's. And there may be issues where, you know, you can't fix it right away. You have to you have to sort of fix it and sort of quickly. Uh, the TPM issue on the AMD side, I think that's probably the one that's bugging people the most right now. If they're mm-hmm. looking to go to Windows 11, you get perfectly good hardware for it. It's like, oh, yeah, the TPM. Well, we didn't turn that on by default. Now we turn it on. Now it's like causing all sorts of really strange issues the interaction with the tpm like audio and deferred procedure call latency it's like you wouldn't think those things have anything to do with one another but how it's built into the os it turns out it is i wonder i wonder if the the easy answer for those folks is just go discreet but you know that's yeah on the board right yeah oh no i think uh i think pretty much every board has a discreet header and uh i i got before they were like a hundred dollars each i got four or five different ones in and i haven't run into a situation where adding just a random tpm module to a motherboard as long as it physically fits didn't work oh did they did they come down in price because i remember for a while the uh, scalpers were buying them and trying to resell them because they thought you need it for windows 11 (laughs) i think they finally have but you know they should be on the order of like eight dollars or less yeah. and i think they're still hovering around 20 but for a while there it was like a hundred which is crazy you should just get a new motherboard right thank you scalpers yeah yikes but so your feeling though is intel might kind of like come out with your you're sort of like thinking they might they may have a small advantage based on i, I think that the I think that Intel is probably going to have a performance edge or they'll probably tune it to get a performance edge for multi-core and single core performance. But I think AMD is probably going to end up with the better, the better every man PC. So like if you're going to get an eight core or something like that, something mainstream, I think AMD is probably going to have more solid options for, for regular folks. Oh, really? Huh? Is it just just on based on performance or just on costs for those parts? Probably between co- cost and performance. Okay. So I like what what at least I think there's more opportunity to to save money because I kind of like what AMD has shared about how they're going to do the chipsets and and uh, shared about how they're going to do you know the lower cost chipset kind of sort of at the same time maybe the rumors say we don't know maybe a couple of weeks later or maybe a month later you know we don't know so they basically um, want to appeal to the usually the the people who aren't high-end they're going to actually have a something pretty early then you think yeah yeah and it also seems like pricing is going to be all over the place this time and um if pricing is dramatically crazy then everybody's going to be buying last gen stuff and uh it seems like there's plenty of last gen stuff at at prices that i can't believe oh yeah Uh, we just got a message this morning it was a a a 5900x for 300 bucks on amazon right now yeah yeah i mean it's just it's like (laughs) Well, I didn't really need that computer, but I could, I mean, because those, those are nice CPUs. I mean, well, and like, e- uh, even, I mean, there are some people who are like, oh, don't buy an AM4 because it's the end of the road, you know, but also it's stable. It's cheap, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It's still good. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to DDR4. see. And it's hard to see getting 
expecting to get that performance at that cost with next generation parts. It's just not right. realistic. So I, I kind of think there is going to be a really good um, window for those older parts. Well, and we've also talked about, or we were going to talk about the, the the fact that a lot of the pricing uh, on parts are, are kind of going up in, in a lot of ways. You know, so Intel kind of announced, hey, you know, we're going to have to look at pricing again. So, I mean, do we think there's going to be a price premium from, from both sides? Uh, you know, yeah. like, ah, you know what? We're going to go up 50 bucks. Yeah, I think that's likely. Yeah, and everything. I mean, in the somebody was just putting in the chat that the motherboard prices for the AM, AM5 are going to be nuts, too. So I am I would expect them to be, they're, if they're on the high-end parts, because they're not going to be easy to build, all right? Especially when you have all the bells and whistles. It is a little crazy yeah. that the motherboards are like $500 is like a high-ish yeah. high, high end board. You can go way higher than that, but yeah. $500 yeah. is like, that's like almost normal kind of like enthusiast board these days. Yeah. But you can still get a really nice AM4 motherboard or a nice Alder Lake motherboard in like the $150 range, hmm. which, you know, do you really need four M.2s? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. You just get your U.2. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, over on uh, Discord, Borea Zero, friend of the show, Borea Zero asks, uh, even if Zen 4 uh, doesn't beat Raptor Lake in everything, is it still a better buy because of the long longevity of AM5 versus LGA 1700? I don't know. The longevity of AM4 has been kind of a double-edged sword for AMD. You know, the B350 and X370 weren't really all that long-lived. It took them a generation to get into the long-lived part. Like, okay, 4 and 500 series and then B B550 later. It's like, yeah, but you weren't really doing yourself any favors trying to claw your X370 motherboard into the future. It had some, some issues. Definitely. But you know what? I... Just because it's not fun and it's painful doesn't mean a lot of people. Because I've been there before. Like, oh, I'm I'm gonna go here because yeah. this is cheaper. If I just do this CPU, it's it's cheaper than and it's it's easier. I don't have to reinstall OS. So I I understand it. Just people are gonna do that route anyway, no matter what. So people love the upgrade. That's just the the they ability really do. to upgrade. It really has always been a, a selling point of of uh, desktop parts. People love the idea of, you know, starting with, I mean, can you imagine the person that started with like a 2700 and then they upgrade to the 5950X on fire sale and it's like, yeah, you're completely modest, you know, Cracker Jack box motherboard will totally run that CPU, no problem. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of mind blowing. It is. Yeah. We, we did this video where we took the original launch um, Ryzen motherboard and we put a, a next 3D part in it. <laughs> <laughs> and like it worked it wasn't fun a lot of stuff's like oh it doesn't quite work with these this memory at the speeds but it is amazing it makes i i can see like i can definitely see a person going oh am4 you really treated me right i'm gonna do am5 yeah. even if even if intel's x if you know x amount faster i i i want to i want to use this board i'm going to do the same thing again i want to use ryzen 10,000 on the same board yeah, and I think those features are the, the kinds of things that are going to, you know, factor in for the everyman sort of scenario. I also really liked AM4, part of the AM4 architecture, a couple of the USB ports routed directly through the CPU. That was nice because those CPU, those USB ports you could count on. Um, <laughs> so versus, you know, the add-in controller where it's like, eh, maybe a little more sketchy. Why is that still such a mess sometimes? I mean, everybody has <laughs> USB issues still. Yeah, I, yeah. Is it just... Uh, 
I, well, it's funny because I get to work on some of this through the the KVMs, and um, it seems like the board manufacturers. I don't know if this is really true or not, but anecdotally, this is my impression. Like all the best USB ports actually end up going to the front panel because all the cases have really sketchy front panel cables, and all of the USB chipsets seem like they're designed to be about one centimeter away from the USB ports on the back of the board. So none of those ICs seem like they are designed to drive the USB, you know, five or 10 gigabit signal, any length of of wire at all. And so the motherboard manufacturers discover this probably in qualification. And they're like, okay, we'll wrap the on CPU USB to the front panel, but you actually would have a better USB experience if you got some high quality cables to route reroute those back to the back of the case to handle the power or whatever else it's a much better usb experience wow that's really interesting i and it is one of the things that you wish they would just tell you where they go to but they never do in the manual i mean they're already like 40 or 50 pages but you just (laughs) wish there was even more i'm sure they were like come on you want us to tell you that there's like five out of a thousand customers that will look but i wish i knew where those 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 uh those i got the block diagram but i don't know where this is on the board sometimes you get lucky and the silk screen is labeled and so you can translate the silk screen labeling to like the physical board at the back of the machine (laughs) right yeah it's rare i always find motherboard motherboard engineering and design to be like very much you can always see the engine the engineering in it because the memory is always like you generally install ram in the outer pair of memory and that is always like like dims three and four you don't use one and two but like a regular person who's never built a pc because i oh it must be you know one and two right because that's one and two like but it's always like it's reverse labeled because that's probably just how it is on the on on the layout so they they don't bother to to make it consumer friendly it feels like it's just the engineer going oh well that's the way we do it in the plan so we've done it that way for 20 years (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like oh don't you know anything this is how you totally have to it's like oh yeah, you know, actually a USB side experiment I've been meaning to do is um, using an LDAT to see how much uh, latency, if there is any latency, moving around the crappy USB ports on a machine, and as well as using the front ports. So you can, you know, because oh, yeah. you, know, you should be able to say, like, it should hmm. add a little bit. I mean, it might. It probably doesn't. But I'm just... I'll, chipset, yeah. I'm interested to see if, if there's actually a latency hit from moving to the crappy chipsets. Uh, crappy uh, USB ports on a, on a board, though. Usually, um, so the fun, the other fun half of that experiment is going to be after the machine's been on for a while and you've done a bunch of stuff through USB, a lot of the time the drivers are super buggy. Mm. So if you go in and out of the different kinds of modes and the machine has been you know running for a week and then you try it, that's going to be much more interesting. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, we do have another good question from over on our Discord from... Uh, Pyrocumulus said, uh, with the expectation of long-term support of AM5 platform, what are your thoughts on quote-unquote future-proofing with a high-end X670E motherboard? Might this be the exception to the don't-try-to-future-proof terminology? I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, the, go ahead. No, I, I, I'll, I'll, so you can continue to stew on I'm thinking... You know, future-proofing is always that word. We've used it for a long time. It's convenient. People love to click on it. But it probably oversells it a little bit. It's sort of like, Hmm. it's more, it's just a hedge, it feels like. It's a hedge. You never know what's going to come through. I would say, yeah, 
you, you like because I can tell you the engineering and resources that will go into an you know an X six seventy the high end five hundred dollar motherboard will be much more than the one hundred dollar motherboard. So well, but also yeah. if you think about what you were just talked about when you use that review unit X three seventy board, I mean that was a high end board. That was right, an expensive was board, board, right? You know, it's like, and you still, by the time 5800X3D came out, you were just like, ah, there's still some some problems with it. I mean, do you think you could get around that with the these extreme motherboards? There is some wisdom in that, because I'm thinking of the four, when AM4 launched, there were four boards from MSI, ASRock, ASUS, and Gigabyte, and those boards got the most love over the years terms of bios updates bug hunting and that kind of thing so i think if they're talking about one of those boards like whatever the flagship boards are whatever the launch boards are there's probably some wisdom in that so yeah future proof it go for it future proof <laughs> or Ding. or is it better to 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 buy a better uh, a bank for your buck motherboard at the time and then get a new motherboard Place later that to, towards the end if that was your plan all along, maybe. <laughs> Depends on how much money you save. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but then the, the whole glory of dropping in a CPU upgrades, you know, the, I, you know, at that point, might as well go Intel. I just can't see somebody ever being that conscious about it. And if you're that, you know, you have, it's one of those, definitely one of those, like, I'm going to plan to do this, and then this will happen, and that will happen. Plans four years down the road uh, may not end up being where you're at. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I, I got another uh, question on here. Um, uh, Cause MC, friend of the show, Cause MC says, to piggyback off this, uh, thoughts on buying a motherboard with then the intent of upgrading the CPU in three to four versus buying the top end CPU with the intent of running system 10 plus years. So what, what if you're just like, hey, you know what? I, I'm not going to upgrade. I just want to buy the best thing and it's going to last me 10 years. Ooh, I don't know. That's not a good strategy anymore. Not for desktop. Oh, you don't think so? No, because look at look at how insane. So, like, you've got like the twelve seven hundred k ish, which is like three hundred ish dollars on sale if you catch it, and the aforementioned fifty nine hundred x around three hundred dollars if you catch it. And think about you know what would you be rocking if you're if you're doing a six seven eight year old machine now? Is that like a Haswell? 39 30 K or something like that. I mean, there, there are some people still on Sandy bridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's different now though. I feel like it is different now though, because you know, like we've, we've got the core wars, we have, you know, different designs, we've got 3d V cache, you know, like there's all these like extra things that are being kind of introduced. It's not as cut and dry as like, Oh, Hey, what's the clock speed and core count? Yeah. But then the day you're still using a quad core Haswell from 2000 and you know, 12 2014 right i so. mean it's, it serves some people well yeah no i mean they're still perfectly serviceable for many things but it's going to feel if it does feel like if you're the kind of person that is at the high end anyway you can't you know you can't really expect that service life out of it <laughs> well now yeah. we have now we have people in the uh in the stream <laughs> uh, we, we got uh what, severus 84 says my core 2 duo e6600 is still running strong uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, and uh, Chaos the Bomb says a uh, 3930K is Sandy Bridge. Uh, it, it's still in their server. You know what the ultimate grudge match would be? That E6600 versus the Athlon 3000. <laughs> <Let's>... <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably, I just, uh, just, I mean, it works. I mean, it works. I think it's like, but I'm not sure if that's the best attribute. Plus, you're giving up so many modern amenities. I couldn't do it. I just, I, I, I mean. So you'd rather go an AM4 or an AM5 with the uh, intent of upgrading your CPU later? I almost now that I'm and that kind See, of if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one of like, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy AM5. Uh, you know, I I know that I at least have the chance to upgrade the CPU later versus, oh, I'm going to get 13th gen and then be like, okay, this is you know top of the line right now. I'm going to hold on to it for 10 years and just upgrade the whole thing later. Well, I mean, between those two, definitely AM5 gives you a, the better odds of getting something better in that socket. Yeah. Right. For so, sure. If you really like, I'm I'm planning for, you know, to change the CPU in in 2030. Then I guess <laughs> probably <laughs> it's going to be better because we know that Intel will probably is they as they do two sockets, two chips only. It'll 13th will be on the line. Seven thousand gets you probably eight thousand. You know, probably nine thousand, maybe ten thousand. You know. That's definitely further along uh, down the road, so mm. it makes more sense. But but it is still a big bet, and you know the fu- the problem with future proofing is the term is it oversells it. So it really, yeah, I mean, like, what future are you talking about? A future in a couple years or a future in ten years? Like, there's no such you know. It's like defined future. Which future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would definitely say AM five in that case. So yeah, I mean that that's you're going to always have probably an easier option no matter what. Even if you can only go one generation, you you probably at least get that. Yeah. You know, and AMD's played it really well because, you know, the funny thing is the fact that they had to stick with the same socket for so long is in the old days just because <laughs> motherboard makers like, look, nobody buys your processors. Nobody's <laughs> buying these things, right? I'm not going to remake everything over. You're just going to like... It's just it was just easier, right? They just did not want to like Intel could say, oh, okay, throw away everything, start over again, okay, because it's like, you know, when you have eighty percent market share, ninety percent, then people do it because you can sell new things. With AMD, which is really, really hard, that was always it was they it's really turned to a strength for AMD, it feels like these days, because people really AM four really was spectacular in the in the in that longevity that it didn't feel like we've seen in 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 a long long time. So I think they they play played that really well. I feel like they would want to do it again, but could they really? Would they stick to this? Would they stick to AM five for four generations of parts if if it really handcuffs in performance? If they're getting kicked in the teeth by Intel because Intel's thrown away everything again and started with a new platform, and AMD can't go further because they're literally handcuffed by this AM5 socket, they got to dump it overboard, so. Yeah, and, uh, you know, by the same token, Intel, we kind of got a preview of this over the last year and a half, two years with Intel with Ice Lake because Intel was kind of caught where they needed to move to four-channel memory seemingly faster than maybe than they planned. But 30, uh, 31, uh, the previous, the Skylake X socket, 3175, um, was uh, perfectly viable. I mean, if you're not going to run 28 cores, you know, six-channel memory, it's good memory controller. It's perfectly fine. Um, and, and then we never really got anything for high-end desktop beyond X299. So it was just kind of this 
weird vacuum maybe between the pandemic and manufacturing timing and volume ramping where we could have had Xeons or maybe even high-end desktop processors like the 3175X, but that weren't as expensive and that were some kind of an answer. And we know at least EVGA and, and Asus and, and Gigabyte had ramped up production of 3175X motherboards, but it just it just kind of died on the vine. And so maybe if we have on the AMD side, maybe, and with Threadripper Pro being as expensive as it is, maybe there's an opportunity for a socket that's kind of in the middle. We know that, you know, Genoa is not, not out yet, but the rumors are that Genoa has got another new socket that's supporting an ungodly amount of memory. And so maybe the socket will live on. Really? I mean, I kind of wonder, I feel like, well, <laughs> they just gave up, right? I mean, they just kind of gave up. Third of her was just slaughtering them. There was like no, and there's nothing they could do. It really feels like they, they just given up at that point. Cause there's like any coming out with any new parts would have just been more embarrassing in a way because you come out a new part and you're still massive. No one slower. wants this. Nobody wants yeah. it. I mean, I don't know if nobody wants it because Intel's name is still worth a lot to people, but I just think it's like from a pure performance, that just looks bad. It felt like, but and even, and I kind of wonder, and this is actually a good segue to the next topic is like even AMD after basically sort of building out, you know, a surprising success with Threadripper, they kind of like, well, you know what? We're only going to do pro parts because I, I've, I've always felt like, you know what? Is this segment's too small? You got fifty nine fifty X. You want sixteen cores? If you want to go big, go big for real money. You know, if you're Exxon Mobil, you know we're going to sell you this <laughs> this CPU workstation and make really good. That's coffee. a twenty five K you know price for the entry level box. Why why am I going to play around with this chump change with the Threadripper? Well, so. r- real quick uh, question I have: What is the difference between normal Threadripper and Threadripper Pro? Uh, Threadripper Pro supports eight channels of memory versus four, and it's qualified for uh, registered error correcting memory, which is basically server memory. It's not qualified for two DIMMs per channel like Epic is, but basically it's, uh, it's, it is otherwise, it's closer to Epic really than Threadripper in a lot of characteristics. Hmm. Um, 3200 memory versus you know, officially supported. Although Threadripper Pro will run with 3600. I don't really recommend it. I've got a video coming out on that. It's like, you can use desktop memory with it, but I I don't know that you should because why? No. Got a bunch laying around, you know? Yeah. Well, that's not, that's not, (laughs) you're not setting yourself up for the best experience with Threadripper Pro, but, um, uh, the chipset is slightly different, but not really. Um, and so it's TRX 40 for Threadripper and WRX 80 versus Threadripper Pro. But it turns out the actual chipset, like the features that it provides are pretty much the same. A Threadripper Pro also doesn't limit you on PCIe lanes. Threadripper was 64 lanes. Threadripper Pro is 128 lanes. You get all the lanes from the CPU. So you can have ridiculous motherboards that, you know, have seven X16 slots, basically. <laughs> it's basically a real actual professional. I mean, it's it's... Definitely a professional class product. I mean, like in the truest sense, right? Yeah. Wait. So, like, and and I feel like when Threadripper was, you know, the first couple of years that it that it was out, the non-pro Threadripper, you had some people, you know, enthusiast people like myself, maybe video editors, something being like, oh, sweet, I can get all these cores. Uh, but now that delineation is is just kind of gone. You just want just go with a, a mainstream socket. But the the, the pro stuff is kind of a, a whole separate level. Right. Like, is yeah. there, it, would there still be a space for that middle ground? Do you think, Wendell? I think in, at least in terms of pricing that there certainly is. Um, I don't know. It, it really is going to depend on where 
AM5 7000 LANs because look at the 24 core Threadripper Pro. If you don't need the PCIe lanes and you don't need the memory capacity, do we really think that a 24 core Threadripper Pro is going to be faster than a 16 core top end AMD 7000 part? I don't think so. Hmm. I think the 16 the 16 core AMD 7000 like the baseline is probably going to be right at the 24 core Threadripper Pro and the single core performance is going to completely destroy it. Hmm. So, you know, unless you need 512 gigabytes or a terabyte of memory and uh, a crap load of PCIe lanes, it's probably going to make more sense to go with uh, AMD 5000. And actually, here's an opportunity for motherboard vendors to step in. If, you know, AMD uh, 7000 is PCIe 5, 16 PCI Express 5 lanes is the same as 32 PCI Express 4 lanes. We don't really have a lot other than storage. It's PCI Express 5 right now. Somebody make a motherboard that, that you know, sends... 16 PCI Express 5 lanes through a PLX bridge down into 32 lanes of PCI Express 4. And then you can add your crap load of peripherals to that. And then the only thing you're missing is memory capacity. Which, I mean, and that's that's more for workstation class stuff anyway, right? Like that, that yeah. much memory. Uh, we, yeah. we have a, a, a good follow-up question from a, a friend of the show, Pedro Akura, here on YouTube. Um, Gaming-wise, uh, does Threadripper uh, make no, no sense, correct? Uh, I would say, has, did it ever make sense? <laughs> no, yes. for gaming, unless you're a game developer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and, and the throw, then the pro doesn't change that. No. Nobody should be gaming on a pro. Uh, well, yeah, no one... You can. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, you you can, but should you? Does it make sense? But, you know, people... The whole idea of playing a game on a 32 core and up CPU is yeah. like, that's there's a real crowd there, and you know more power to them. So, um, for me, I like to run Linux. Sorry, or yay, and yeah, and Threadripper Pro is sort of transformational in that regard. So, um, I'm working on a on a video about. Uh, Windows server security and using Sysmon and some other sort of third-party utilities to really get a better handle on the Windows event log and things that happen in Windows um, from a security standpoint. And Threadripper Pro can simulate the entire business domain. It's like, oh, I need to simulate 20 Windows virtual machines and a couple of domain controllers. And yeah, it just shrugs that off. That's not even a problem. I would not want to do that on a 16-core processor. Uh, and most of that is memory, but some of that's also CPU. And with Linux as the host operating system, you know, I can run a Windows VM and I can pass through a GPU to the Windows VM and be running games in the Windows VM at basically bare metal speed. Take some tuning and I gotta jump through some hoops. Gotta jump through even more hoops to get the anti-cheat stuff to not detect that it's running in a virtual machine. It's doable, but it's a pain in the butt. Uh, but that is sort of like, you know, the one workstation, that's a way that you can do the one workstation in a way that's just not possible with pretty much anything else. And the, oh, go ahead. Did you, uh, no, <laughs> I had a question about performance. You did, cause you know, there's, you know, you did some performance testing so far and I think you may have some more coming, but you, you saw the 32 core thread of pro 5,000, I think it was like 40% faster than a. Yeah, the thirty. No, was it? Yeah, with a thirty-two core version, thirty-two versus thirty-two, it was forty percent yeah. faster. Yeah, it depends on what you're doing, but if you have something that needs more cache, even moving from uh, third-gen Threadripper to 
fifth gen, just having more cash per core because it's all one one unified domain, it can be up to 40% faster. On average, it's probably more like 15, 20%, something like that. But uh, the also the comparison is also with Epic. And so like 64 core Epic versus 32 core Threadripper Pro 5000. Uh, Threadripper Pro 5000 is kind of winning. Um, it's less overhead because you don't have to split the job onto as many cores, so you win there. Um, but also the insane clock speed and and power limits are sort of a lot of fun. It's also uh, the motherboards sort of do some weird stuff. So I've got the ASRock Creator WRX80, and it seems not to count about 20 or 30 watts of power that the IO die uses. So it leaves more power for the uh, the CPU cores. I don't, I don't, my impression of it is that it's still not, like it's still a little bit wild west in terms of like a vendor implementation. And whereas Epic, for my, my experience with on Epic server motherboards is uh, everything is a lot more locked down. Like the 7763, you can run, you know, out of the box is 240 watts and you can run it at 280 watts. If CTTB, if you have adequate cooling, but for Threadripper Pro, it seems really super wild west. And it's like, is this an overclock or is this really perfectly stable? So you know, huh. I've been running I've been running on that WRX80 at 307 watts, which is the out-of-the-box default on that ASRock motherboard. And as a result, it is faster than any other motherboard that I've tested. And it hasn't been unstable. I haven't had temperature issues. It's been completely fine. So, so you actually have, you know, there are standalone boards for 5,000 parts, the Pro parts. But they're not actually being sold to DIY market. They are. Are they? Oh, I thought they weren't. I thought they were still, um, I thought they were OEM only for the Pro 5000 parts. I think you can, oh. at least Micro Center and the other places, they've got, uh, like the Asus Sage, you can buy that one at retail. That one doesn't support overclocking. Um, but I'm pretty sure you can also buy the Creator WRX. Yeah, you can buy the WRX oh, okay. Creator at Newegg. So really, yeah, it's pushing the DIY market, but um, I guess... I guess I would kind of explain why it's a little bit of a wild west there. It's not as locked down on the, the DIY. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, you know, that's always the advantage of buying, you know, pre-built, you know, workstation from somebody. Who... Yeah. My other Threadripper system is um, from Puget Systems, and it's based on the Asus Sage WRX80. As far as I can tell, it's a completely standard retail board. And um, that, that works great. No complaints. It's totally fine. It is... Uh, really solid performance and it's still like you know it's not as fast as the other configuration but it's also not using 307 watts at the socket it's 280 which is i think more in line with the specifications <laughs> yeah I, I mean asrock do i mean it sounds like they're just like let's just do this little cheat to get a little more juice yeah. out of it yeah so yeah and, th- and that counts for people looking at the the benchmark chart right unfortunately yeah yeah i wouldn't you argue though like if you're the kind of person that is using a professional part with a core count like that, you want do you want to ear toward stability? Yeah. More so than yeah, for sure. It all out. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of my argument against desktop memory. It's like you have a platform that supports registered error correcting memory, which is not tremendously more expensive than desktop memory, and it's you know it tops out at thirty two hundred, but thirty two hundred is what the processor supports officially anyway, and you can make up some of that speed by having more ranks. So if you need 32 cores, you know, go for 512 gigs of memory. Uh, there's also load reduced DIMMs and 3D stack DIMMs, but, you know, 512 gigs of memory you can get in just regular old uh, <laughs> registered error correcting <laughs> DIMMs and you're good to go. That's so much RAM. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Gordon and I were talking a, a little bit earlier about this, but like, 
who who is this for? What, what like what kind of what kind of workflows do, do you need a Threadripper Pro for? So on the developer side, it is glorious. Uh, there's a project called Open Embedded, which is the Linux that all your TVs and toasters and everything else under the sun uses. And if you make a change deep enough in that and you need to run through automated testing, you sort of make a code change. And then the tool chain sort of kicks off this thing, simulating a TV and simulating like Chrome on a TV and simulating Chrome loading a web page on a TV huh. and sort of looks at the tests from changing that in open embedded, which is, you know, this embedded Linux thing. And my goodness, 32 cores for that. Oh, it is a, it is a, it is a product. It's a life changer. It's such a quality of life improvement. It's <laughs> completely, I can't say enough nice things about it because <laughs> otherwise you're just sitting there waiting on something to grind or it's got to go off to a server somewhere. Or it's got to be something in the cloud that's, mm-hmm. you know, wildly expensive. So for those kinds of things, it's great. Um, for visual effects and that sort of thing, I've got a, a friend that works at um, a visual effects studio and we did a system for him last year, the year before. And so as many cores as you can throw at it, you know, uh, he will, he will take it. Do you, do you know what program, uh, he was, he was running primarily? Uh, I think it's Lightwave 3d and cinema 40 and after effects, Adobe after effects. And hmm. some of the, the Adobe after effects things are, um, like they're uh, custom extensions. They're like programming that you do yourself. And some of it is GPU accelerated and some of it is CPU accelerated. But when you really start doing custom visual effects, you're sort of run into a wall with what you can do on GPU acceleration. So you got to do a little bit of, a, of it on the CPU and a little bit of it on the GPU. Hmm. There's definitely, I, it's, it's just funny because it, looking at Threadripper's history now, I mean, it feels like Intel, I mean, there've been rumors that they're going to do a part, but it feels like they have to get back in here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, well, or is it just yeah. still a very small, I mean, why, you know, why waste engineering resources on this if it's, it's very profitable, I'm sure it's, but it's exceptionally small, I'm sure. I think that for the workstation, uh, for the workstation side of it, the market's probably pretty large, but the workstation market, it wants the qualification and they want the vendor and they want all of the other stuff that the DIY market doesn't have, which is, you know, Threadripper Pro technically launched with Lenovo at the beginning of 2022, you know, here we are in August talking about Twitter for pro. So I think Lenovo got their fill and um, for the 3000 series CPUs, it was so popular that they didn't make enough. Like you just couldn't buy it. And so a lot of integrators like Puget and Lenovo and others couldn't sell systems that people had bought because supply issues. So it's kind of, it is a niche market but there are people out there that are buying these in significant volumes right. for those kinds of things and paying top dollar too. So it's, yeah. And you know, they don't care that it's like the CPU is $1,200 versus $3,200. They don't care. It's a drop in the bucket compared <laughs> to the entire risk of the uh, entire cost of the rest of the system. Right. And then you're, they're making money from it. So it's, it's, it's well worth it to them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, it would be nice to have something that's enthusiast level beyond the 16 core, but I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I I don't know. Is it really though? I mean, I I guess yeah. There's always there's always somebody that will find a need for. It. But I mean, it's it kind of goes back to filling the original purpose of Threadripper, sort of like more than enthusiast, but below maybe workstation. You know, like that weird kind of space. 
Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely a weird kind of space. I'm thinking more, it's harder to, to talk about it with third, with the Threadripper 3000, Threadripper Pro 3000 and Threadripper Pro 5000. But I'm thinking about like the 2950X. That was a fabulous CPU. It was super cheap for what the amount of horsepower that you got. And so it was just, you know, if you built a system with that, it was marginally more expensive than a really high end system otherwise. And there wasn't a 3950X 16 core alternative, not really. And, um, you know, and then that was sort of the X299 days when things were really expensive. And so it was in all of those things, it was disruptive. And it's always nice to see a disruptive product. And I don't, Threadripper is not disruptive anymore. It's just a sort of, I said this in my video, it's AMD's become a boring execution machine. They're doing exactly <laughs> what we expect. And it's fabulous if you need it, but there's no more of this, you know, it's doing the Kessel run in 12 parsecs aspect of the uh of the experience of computing with that if that makes sense yeah no i hear you because i mean really that third ripper was mind-blowing like every time third ripper came up it was mind-blowing the original one was just like and the funny thing is like how quaint everybody losing their their effing minds over a 16 core cpu today yeah. we look back today it's like what that's that's like what <laughs> but it's just i mean you think back there was just nothing there right i mean you know yeah. so I don't know how you could be disruptive with it at this point, but you know, it, I think AMD just likes making money. So being the execution, <laughs> boring execution terminator is fine. You know, you're printing money there, but yeah, it would be nice yeah. to see Intel play here again. I mean, because competition is always good for everybody. But I saw a thing in the Linux kernel, and I could have totally not understood what I was looking at. Because sometimes you can figure out what's coming in hardware by what's submitted to the Linux kernel. There's a whole cottage industry on the internet for that. Don't <laughs> listen to me on that. But I saw a thing in the Linux kernel that suggested that there was a there was a, a, a CPU from Intel coming for uh, W680, the Alder Lake server chipset, um, that was going to be 24 threads. It was going to be 20 uh, E cores and 2 P cores. And it sounds that like an sounds Ian amazing. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Ian's always talked about <laughs> having that. That's the Ian Cutrus model. It's just <laughs> yeah. like it should have his initials on. Oh, it. you know what? He becomes he. There we go. He becomes an a. Uh, you know, uh, 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 not analyst. Is that the word? Right. But whatever Ian became, yeah, and then he started working with these companies like, listen, this is what we need. We need all the (laughs) e-cores. If you did that and it was, you know, like three or four hundred dollars for an embedded platform, you just need like a router, like an appliance type thing, a couple of p-cores for when you need that little burst of speed and then it's all just e-cores. That would be disruptive for that, that, that niche. But, you know, I don't, that's never really materialized. Yeah, I, that's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one because there are definitely plenty of plenty of business to be had and embedded but not exactly i think anything that gets um, normal folks excited about except other than being <laughs> catrus so <laughs> and then he'd probably go in and disable the two p cores right <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's like i don't need this <laughs> i disabled the p cores and then avx 512 suddenly started <laughs> yeah i have tried to disable the p- some motherboards will let you disable all the p cores but then they won't post because they require instructions that are not present on the e cores <laughs> yeah that's funny i uh, i had to finally update the launch bios on my board i i really should go i think i still have my avx 512 though or they may have been ordered to turn it off i guess i need to go look but that was a fun little fun little experiment after ian discovered that but well you, you know what else is a fun little experiment this is this thing called linux you know yes it's just a little experiment right some people use it 
right? Because I was going to ask about all the things, like most of what your uh, friends are using these uh, high-end parts for, are they running Windows operating system or? Mostly no. Mostly mostly Linux. Mostly um, Linux. Well, Windows is a virtual machine, sure. Yeah. But uh, the host operating system in almost all cases is, is Linux. Um, Windows still does strange things. A lot of really strange things with uh, lots of cores. Yeah. Um, and I just, I don't, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what Microsoft's doing. But, I, um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm going to imagine it's because it's weird for my, it almost feels like they need to have a Windows NT workstation. Like, let's have a real professional OS like, that's actually tuned for the higher performance parts. And then have the, because it's crazy to think you have one damn OS from, you know, U-class laptop all the way up to, you know, 64-core Threadripper. Well, they used um, to have Windows Server, right? Yeah, but that's, you know. Or they, they still have one, yeah, Windows Server to 2022. But we're not here to talk about Windows, Adam. <laughs> we're here. <clears throat> Wendell, level one text. I know you use Linux. I'm going to confess, I have not actually had a permanent install of Linux since Red Hat in 1997. <laughs> and after and I sort of gave up on it soon after I was being told, oh no problems, just shell out and mount your optical drive to install like really? I need to <laughs> Is there so I and I and the reason I do Windows is because most of what I do is my testing because most you know, we're PC world, most of our audience, they're consumers, regular uh regular nerds, they run Windows. That's what you buy at Best Buy, that's what you buy at Costco. So it, what can you tell me? to get me back into Linux, especially because I, my hiatus is like 28 years, 25 years. And it, have you played with the steam deck? <laughs> I, I was hoping this would come up. I was hoping this would come up. I, you know, Gordon the, hates the steam deck. No, you know, I he was, thinks it's horrible. No, I don't. I, I just, I'm not a controller <laughs> okay. person. I'm not a controller person. I'm not. a So for me, I have, and again, if it has zero appeal to me, then why, why should I care? I don't hate it. I think it's a, I think it's awesome for the money with the hardware you're getting. They're building out a new, you know, uh, a new uh, segment of handheld gaming. But for you know, I I actually like. I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll do Steam OS. What's happened with that? I was like, is it dead or is it just? It's just in that that whatever that carbonite that they have up at Valve where they put things into. It sounds like I, I don't for desktop. Well, it, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. It exists. You can manually install it. Um, there's a there's a there's a group called Minis Forum, and they make um, systems that you can drop Steam OS on, and basically have the same kind of experience that you would on the Steam Deck because the hardware is really close to what you get in the Steam Deck. Um, you could use a keyboard and mouse, a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse with the Steam Deck. I'm, I've got to experiment with that. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that'll get Gordon. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, it really is. It really is. So. The the most user friendly distro now is probably Pop OS and from notes. System seventy six, and that one might be worth trying. And um, it'll probably if you got a, you know, you can run it on pretty much anything. They have their own hardware. You know, System seventy six. They'll sell you a laptop or they'll sell you a desktop or whatever. But um, it's pretty easy to get Steam going, and it's pretty easy to uh, get your GPU to be what it needs to be because you know there are there's still a lot of moving pieces amd has their open source driver and so generally an amd gpu and whatever it is that you're using with linux is a is a better experience 
the proprietary parts are stored in a firmware file. And so your distro still has to go and get the firmware file and blah, blah, blah. But you can, you can pretty reasonably manage a pop OS system entirely, you know, via GUI without dropping to a command prompt and install steam and get up and running with games, log in, you know, set up your applications. Um, Microsoft edge for, Linux is also not a terrible experience. You can install Chrome and Firefox, of course. Lauren, um, I had no idea you can even download Edge for Linux. Is it? Yeah, it turns out that the analytics from Microsoft for how people are using Office and everything else is kind of scary high on the Linux side of things. And um, that's part of the reason why Microsoft's done so much work on the Windows subsystem for Linux and getting the integration there. You can have you can almost have a first-class experience with Linux in Windows now, via the WSL. Um, so all the things that Windows just doesn't do well when it comes to software development, you can sort of shim that in with the Windows subsystem for Linux as a way to sort of keep people from leaving <laughs> leaving Windows, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Before, I mean, like, again, I'm I'm not a developer. I, I, you know, I basically, I, I mean, sadly, I use probably my laptop like a Chromebook, but on my desktop, it's classic, you know, Adobe... Microsoft, Chrome, some a little bit of games. I mean, could I could I I could do that and get away with it and live? You probably I... there's not a great uh, analog for um the Adobe suite, but for Office and surfing the web for for your if you're using your laptop like a Chromebook, you might have a better experience with that at least in terms of like battery life, suspend resume and things like that. If your hardware is one of the blessed set of hardware, um, there's a XPS developer edition from Dell. It's also really, they've dotted the I's and crossed the T's and fixed all the bugs in the, in the firmware and that kind of thing. So it's, a, it's a, it's a lot of fun and it works well and, and has insanely good battery life. Even, you know, like the whole, Oh, the M one is like super amazing. And then you've got, you know, in terms of battery life and everything else. And then you've got, you know, some, not the M one, which is not as good. You can, you can approach it in terms of battery life and other performance on the Linux versus windows um, for the right hardware. But if you have not the right hardware, then it's probably not as good of an experience. So here's my other question. Why is, why is Linux always generally feels like tighter for performance? Is it because of where it's used? And then that just trickles down like on server side, all those things are, it feels like Linux is always has generally not always but you know generally a performance edge and a lot of it feels like because the optimization is just like done immediately the people who use linux are willing to chase down the insane edge case to figure out why it did the thing that it did you you have the, the crazy person who's willing to load the nand flash into a relational database and construct it one lba sector at a time to figure out exactly how the ssd failed versus the normal person which is ah, it failed that's weird let's get another one <laughs> <laughs> so um a lot of the time like the code the code in linux the kernel and drivers and, and everything else generally is, is pretty beautiful like linus torvalds and and uh, greg crow hartman and and you know those guys managing this incredibly chaotic you know orchestra of instruments that they're able to produce a reasonable operating system kernel out of that and then around that is built all the distros and everything else it really is an an, an incredible accomplishment you know, of humanity, like somebody would wander around. It's like out of all of that chaos comes this order. It makes no sense. 
And a lot of it um, is just simply done purely for the, the good of computing, right? So, Yes, and there's a lot of debate. I mean, even things like the scheduler, like the minutia of the scheduler, there is a lot of stuff that you can tune around the scheduler depending on what kind of workload that you want to run, laptop, desktop, server, that kind of thing. And so different distros have different uh, defaults and different distros will actually look at what you're running and say, you probably want a server workload for this. You probably want a, uh, you know, a scheduler that's good for servers. You probably want a scheduler that's good for your laptop. You probably want one for the laptop that'll maximize your uh, battery performance. And um, you can see how it's built. And so if you have the skills, you can look at it and say, oh, this isn't that great. Let's actually fix it. Whereas even the people inside Microsoft, their scheduler is such a black box that they just don't want to touch it because if they change one thing, they'll break something else. Um, And it's sort of the opposite situation. And it's, you know, you would think one would be open versus closed that, you know, everybody inside Microsoft would have a good understanding of what's going on with the scheduler, but it's just not, not the case. Yeah. And it it always feels like it's always constant mess with the Microsoft scheduler, the Windows scheduler, because it, yeah. As you get closer to the parts that the user touches, though, it gets considerably less pretty. Um, <laughs> and so that sort of tarnishes, uh, I think, a, a lot of Linux's reputation. So it's like Linux on the desktop. And it's like, well, uh, it's, it's the, the least pretty part of Linux. But for everything else, for literally anything other than the desktop, Linux has already completely taken over the universe and destroyed or supplanted everything. Right. Uh, you know, Linux, the kernel for your phone operating system in Android and routers and toasters and televisions and literally everything but your your desktop. Maybe pretty soon consoles other than the Steam Deck. I don't know. Um, hmm. Because it does so much stuff and is so well built and is uh, is is it really is. You know, the seven wonders of the world. It's like, how did ancient man build a giant pyramid? People are going to look back and be like, how did they ever produce a kernel like this? Well, I thought you were going to say the pyramids were made using Linux. I thought you were going. (laughs) And if you think about it, too, the fact that it is, well, is it rule by committee or is it, I mean, because generally things where you get group consensus are, it's always a failure. So (laughs) I'm just surprised, like, how in the hell... Do you get people to agree to stuff? I mean, is this is it- a good mantra. None of us is as dumb as all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but how would I mean, how does it exist then in the state it's in? Because you would expect when you have everybody's input on something that everybody ruins it. A lot of the time when you, when you're working that close to the bare metal, a lot of the time you can eventually get people to agree that one way is objectively better than another way. Um, you know, evaluations, benchmarks, performance, convention, maintainability. There's a lot of history for those kinds of things. And so it's not, I like this because it's my code. It's, I like this because it's, because it's better. And those conversations happen with the, with the developer and you can see that and it's transparent and it really is, it really is an interesting observation just of humanity, even if you're not interested in the technical parts of it, because, um, a lot of those kind of things do go away for from the committee side of it but i think that also works against linux too because that's why we have some of these really long timelines a lot of the time linux will not do something just to have a quick fix you know the people farther up the chain say nah, this looks like a horrible messy band-aid we're not going to accept this you're going to need to fix these things 
before we actually fix it. Um, I'll give you a really good example. Uh, Valve submitted a Linux kernel patch to add a primitive to the Linux kernel that mimics a primitive that's available in the Windows kernel. And so what I mean by primitive is that there's a, there's a, a piece of software that is really tightly coupled to some of the hardware that's available in the CPU. And Linux software works differently, and so I didn't need that primitive. It wasn't built to support it, but a lot of games would use it in thread switching or in moving data around or whatever. And so simulating that, you know, much farther down in user software versus inside the kernel was considerably slower and that was negatively impacting game performance. And so Valve submitted a, a patch to the Linux kernel and said, well, we're adding this basically for Windows compatibility and, you know, we're sorry about this and blah, blah, blah. And then just watching the conversations and stuff that unfolded from that, which is not, no, we're not going to take this because Windows is bad and it's stupid, but it's more like, okay, help us understand the pain and misery of the users and then, you know, finally, after a lot of conversation around that, it was, okay, we're going to accept this into the Linux kernel because the users kind of need it because not just because Valve is asking for it, but because this is sort of how we ended up here. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that, that's still encouragement, though, because I, I, I could see would have just been a rejection all, all out, right? Because just like, no. Yeah. Right? Well, also, yeah. how, how long did that take? Or, you know, roughly? <sighs> Are we talking years like- or months it wasn't it wasn't years but it was months it was uh it's like well we can you can always patch it yourself you know that's always the argument at first it's like hey you know in, in valve and your version of linux yeah you go right ahead well you you do you it's totally fine but the larger argument was well a lot of people are using steam on a lot of different distros not every distro is going to adopt this maybe we should do this and so while the fix might have been available to some distros in a matter of weeks you know, adoption took months or years is, you know, it's depending on how you want to look at that. Hmm. Whereas with windows, you know, it's like if HP wants to patch windows, the windows kernel to do something, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) That would be funny. Or, or or, you know, AMD is like, we found that, you know, the scheduler really doesn't understand the, you know, the NUMA topology here. Let's, you know, here's a patch. Like we've read the source code. We understand it. Here's a patch. You can apply for our hardware. No. How about no? Does no work for you? Cause that's what, you know, Microsoft would do. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft is the ultimate authority in, in the, in the x86 windows universe for everything. So I, I, I was still, I'm still convinced. And I'm going to say this AMD always said there are no scheduler issues with Ryzen 1000 on windows. <laughs> it's not their fault. And I always felt like that's that's the absolute statement they issued to everybody who wrote about, like, is it Windows' fault? Because it looks like it might be Windows' fault. It's like, it is not Windows' fault. That is official line. I always felt that's like shooting someone in the face with the shotgun and then having them apologize to you for it. I am sorry. Well, yeah, I guess you shouldn't stand up. But- <laughs> there's, there's an issue. Um, it's, it's so Stuff like that is all is always so nuanced, too. There's an issue right now with Alder Lake. Uh, on on Linux, so you know the thread director thing. Um, on most motherboards, and this wasn't true on launch day for Alder Lake, but uh, on most motherboards, when you enable anything, even XMP, uh, there's a table that's like how good is each core, how how can we expect everything to to perform, and your your P cores are uh, you know have one classification, and your E cores have a much lower classification. Then you get your hyper threaded threads. And so there's this ACPI table that is a kind of a hint to, to the operating system as to which core is capable of what speed so that the scheduler can take that into account when it's scheduling which core runs what process. 
Well, on Alder Lake, that ACPI table instantly says every processor is as good as it possibly can be. It's an 8-bit value, so that's FF and hex or 255. So as every thread and core is exactly the same as every other thread and core, which is not true in reality. But if you disable XMP and you, which is stupid, and do some other stuff, then that table reports honestly. The thread director in Windows is obviously not using that table, but historically that table is what was used even before Alder Lake because you had your preferred cores on the 7,000, 8,000, and 9,000 series as well, and the preferred cores would be slightly better than the other one because the Linux scheduler is not concerned with you know that ephemeral boost to 5.2 gigahertz or whatever. It's just, it's like, I'll try to run stuff on this core. And then the hardware is the thing that's, that's doing the boost. Mm. And that's never been fixed. Like that just, they just, Intel just doesn't care. It's just not, it's not, they're going to, they're going to fix it a different way by creating this whole other set of machinery to say, oh, this is the, the, you know, your P core and your E core and whatever. And it's not this table that has been there since time immemorial. And so it's just stuff like that is like, well, that's why it's performing like crap. Mm. Well, if if Linux is already so prevalent, why like what's what's the final straw? How how are we going to convince Gordon to start using it? I think. Uh, well, I mean, I can help you install it. I uh. <laughs> no, I, I'm gonna you know honestly, no, I'm 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 gonna try Pop OS System seventy six on your recommendation, and and you know, I I like, and I've never heard anybody describe Linux as like if you think about it, holy smokes, just like. You're basically herding cats and you basically it is it is amazing that it works. It's like music somehow. It's like yeah. this ragtag band of musicians that's just making beautiful music. You know, yeah. honestly, that sounds really attractive to me. It's like I'll, I'll give that a try. You know, it's it's again, it's been a long time. I've installed mint and you know, but then it blew them away. <laughs> but I'm 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 actually very interested to try that out to see if it's it's if I could possibly transition to it. I I don't think so because of what I do for work and all those other things. But I I I'm I would like to try it just because I mean you think about it you're these people are doing it for the good of computing and you know humanity in some ways has taken over. You know what? Heck, let's let's give it a shot. It's um for me the thing that keeps me coming back to Linux. I don't use Linux exclusively. I use Windows a lot. I probably use macOS the least, but um. Uh, the thing that keeps me coming back to Linux is that the longevity of the stuff that I've built with Linux is so unlike anything else. I mean, I've been using Linux since the late nineties and stuff that I put together for myself, you know, in the late nineties and early two thousands is still just as usable today as it is. And it's lower level stuff. It's not necessarily gooey stuff is, uh, is just as usable today as it was then. I mean, I've got, um, files and things organized and uh, kind of like a personal database of you know i was like i make notes on things and then i try to organize the notes and then i take pictures of stuff that i'm working on it's like this is how i do this or this is how i reprogram this keyboard controller or this is how i do this because i'm not going to remember it all and but i want to be able to quickly find and digest those kinds of things i don't i wouldn't trust windows with that i just <laughs> i just wouldn't <laughs> You know, and my last question for you on Linux is, um, I'm going to, I, my, in the old days for me, you know, obviously DOS, but you know, they're Vic OS and VMS, not case sensitive. Is, yeah. is Pop OS case sensitive? What's up with it the is. case? 
What's up with the case sensitive thing and like <laughs> Unix Linux people, man? You can just, disable the case sensitivity, but I don't know if that's going to get yourself into trouble. <laughs> I mean, but come on. I just it's just one more key that I don't I don't get it. I mean like most of the time the case sensitivity doesn't matter because even when you're using command line, you just type the first letter or two and it'll autocomplete. So eh. Windows is Windows case sensitivity is sort of weird though because it will remember whatever weird case like if you alternate caps every other letter it'll remember that and store it but you know if you don't specify it the same way later it'll actually use that so you were asking why Linux is faster earlier that's why because <laughs> it's case sensitive yes because of the case like we don't have to like figure out why yeah uh, so many cycles so like two e cores just to figure out what case. Is it an uppercase T, lowercase T? Yeah, that's... I mean, if Microsoft's going to put that much work into it, they should also make string sorting work correctly. So that if you have folders that begin with numbers, that it's like, oh, that's a number. I should sort this in a sane way and not have one be right next to 11. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, okay, I'm going to ask, because I, I said I had the last question, but I do. You know, Microsoft has really made it a point to like, we love Linux. Linux is our best friend. Is that generally been i mean they're definitely doing a lot of development and you know they're, they're trying to integrate linux a lot into windows it feels like and are do you think this is just simply embrace and extend again or do you think it's like microsoft doesn't give a damn about these stupid client os's and they would just like just to do servers and make cl- money off cloud maybe they like do you think you'll like really long term is like we'll just let you take it because this is like not worth it yeah, I think that um, I don't think it's an embrace, extend, extinguish, as we saw, you know, in the Halloween documents and stuff like that uh, in the uh, late uh, late 90s, early 2000s uh, or whenever that was. Um, I think it's just Microsoft doesn't care. They don't really see Windows as a profit center anymore. And or the ways in which Windows is a profit center is not doesn't even need to be Windows specific. Like when you click the start menu and it's filled with lots of useless garbage that's mm. from the internet, that's just juicing somebody's analytics dashboard inside Microsoft. The whole reason that exists is because somebody's looking at a dashboard that every time somebody clicks on the start menu, it's like, oh, we're getting lots of user interaction. This is great. That can happen on Linux. That can happen on Windows. That can happen on any operating system. Those are the, those are the metrics by which the success and failure of the operating system is measured. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, the Windows subsystem for Linux also solves a lot of problems for Microsoft in that Mac was kind of taken over because of the way that they work, which is very Linux-like in terms of development for basically anything that wasn't Windows application development. I mean, Visual Studio is great. Visual C++ is, is, is great. Microsoft's tool chain really is second to none in the world, and they've got their, their best people working on, on that kind of stuff. But uh, for that kind of stuff pretty much if you weren't in a windows ecosystem if you were working in the cloud then you really really had to work uphill using a windows operating system and now with the windows subsystem for linux that basically goes away so microsoft kind of overnight without really putting a lot of engineering into it can have something that is uh competitive with the developer experience on mac and competitive with the developer experience on native linux i had no idea and um, Mac, of course, is not Linux. It's uh, Berkeley, right? BSD. Yeah, BSD. So, BSD. Yeah, yeah. It's it's slowly rotting from the inside. Apple's not giving it the uh, the operating system people. Apple's got them all working on iPads and iPhones, and oh my god, they're not uh, Mac OS under the hood. It's really 
they're going to have to spend some time on the operating system soon, or it's just going to fall apart. I, I, yeah. It, to me, the scary thing is now that they're because you know for Mac people, they always have that out. I'm just going to run Linux then. I mean, I'm just going to run Windows. Yeah. Macs these these Macs are is you know the new Macs are basically you're you're trapped to whatever you get. I I kind of wonder. Which is great now because they care about it, but in four years, if they no longer care about it, you're, they, they've just barely got Linux working on the M1 with no help or documentation from Apple. So um, Linus Torvalds is running, uh, I think it's a shy Linux on his M1, and it's getting there. So maybe when Apple abandons them, it would be a reasonable you know, Chromebook like experience, but Linux. All right, I'm going to run it. Pop OS. That's it. You heard it. Yeah, do it. We'll, we'll make it a series. We'll, From zero uh, to Stellaris. We can make the video together. It'll be awesome. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> as long as I don't have to, to shell out and mount the optical drive, too. Like, no, you won't have to do that. That's, I mean, that was really... That's a shout-out to uh, my coworker from back then, who was a huge Linux. Still is. <laughs> David Vincent. So... <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, let's get to some questions. Uh, you still good on time, uh, Wendell? Yep. Just okay. Uh, well, if you got any questions right now, put them in the chat uh, and at PC World. That's the easiest way for for me to see it. Uh, if you're watching or listening to this later, uh, head over to our Discord. We've got an awesome community over there, and there is a uh, channel uh, called Full Nerd Questions that you can put into, and I will uh, hopefully read them on the show. I got a couple from earlier that uh, I've been holding on to. So uh, Mike Quinton, friend of the show, Mike Quinton gave us a forty dollars super chat. Thank you so much. Uh, always appreciate it. Said uh, Wendell, why is two steps of ram better than four sticks saw steve's video already uh, he said he was going to check with you uh, i wasn't just two sticks of memory it was two sticks of dual rank so this is a question about ranks mm. and latency and performance and so electrically having four single rank dims is a little harder on your memory controller and the timings have to be a little looser generally than two sticks of memory that are dual rank because your, your ranks can be across dims or they can be across slots. But if your ranks are in a single slot, then that's a little easier electrically and noise and performance related. So, th so the answer is by two sticks of dual rank. Yeah. Okay. And wh how, how do you make sure you know that it's dual rank? You have to look at the specs because okay. it's not, it's not guaranteed. Do they, I mean, cause I, the mem memory makers really want to obscure that it seems like yes because i mean because clearly people want dual rank but they is that just simply because they can't supply it or or what i don't i don't understand why they they don't like they don't just like oh look dual it could be rank, a marketing whatever. thing right yeah but all oh, this one's dual rank you know but i wonder if it's because they know they just simply can't supply enough of it or something i, I never could figure out why they don't really put that um you know on the packaging it, for a long time, 16 gigabyte DIMMs were always dual rank until, you know, the last year or two. And then you can actually get 16 gig single rank DIMMs because the density of the chips has gone up. Usually it's the case that the really high density memory chips are all going to server stuff first and desktop people only get the leftover swill anyway. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, we got a... Um... Uh, I, question from uh, Erwin Dave, Davison uh, says, uh, can you convince Wendell to do an update video on the Synology NAS, specifically the Synology photos, as I am having trouble setting up my family members on it and would love a tutorial. There you go. Can you make mm -hmm. a video just for Erwin? 
I'll have to look just for the Synology Photos app. Specifically. I'll have to look at that and see what the problem is. Okay. All right. Uh, he, he will look into it. Uh, friend of the show, Pedro Akura asks, um, I have parts to be used. Uh, I have parts to be used, uh, which is an FX 6300 and was thinking of making a server, quote unquote, at home. Uh, which which do you think is a better route, Windows or Linux? Uh, if Linux, which distro? Well, it depends on what you want to do. So like Unraid is the easy button and that's a, that's, uh, you know, Linux based. It's like, I think 40 bucks, even though it's Linux based, that is the easiest of the easy buttons for, um, setting up anything. You can basically just throw a pile of hardware at it. And it's like, ah, I can make some redundancy with this. and <laughs> It'll, it'll hold your hand and walk you through it. So wait, I thought Linux was free. How, how are people charging for Linux? What the, what the hell's you, up with that? Yeah, it's not necessarily. I mean, you can, oh. the Linux part of it is free, but the <laughs> software running on top of it, you know, you can charge for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounds like a great idea too, because I, my problem with um, proprietary, well, you know, pre-bought NAS boxes is when they, I've had too many of them croak on me. And like, I just want to use off the shelf parts that I, you know, or I know can go longer. So, and I can find replacements for in five or 10 years. Yeah. In general, I recommend something for that kind of thing. I, I recommend something that will use the ZFS operating system to make your stuff, your drives as portable from, from A to B, but. Oh, that, that, that's funny because uh, James Pryor in the chat uh, says, uh, please, can Wendell give us an oral history of ZFS? Oh, <laughs> uh, he's just trolling. No, that's fine. The, um, so Z, ZFS was the Zettabyte file system from Sun Microsystems. Remember Sun Microsystems? It was like they were like the guys. They were ahead of everybody. And um, they open sourced uh, in their sort of death throes. They open sourced um, ZFS, but it was not. A, not a normal open source license. Um, and then Oracle bought them and Oracle was very upset that they had open sourced ZFS, but it sort of squeaked through. Um, Apple was, uh, Apple had added ZFS to, I think it was uh, version 11 OS, OS 10 or OS 11 or like 10 point. It wasn't maybe the debut version, but Apple had an event like the week that I guess the deal was finalized and they sent a really nasty letter supposedly uh, to Apple to say, if you include ZFS in, in the, uh, in your Apple operating system, we will come after you. So they took it out at the last minute, but um, you can, you can add it, you can add it back, but there's a a really nice set of folks working on uh, the open source aspect of ZFS. And so ZFS is very well supported now on a bunch of Linux distros, but it, it requires a kernel module, but the license is not compatible with the Linux kernel. So if you do that, you have to do it yourself. And that's fine if you do it yourself. You just can't build a product or build a distro around it because the open source license for ZFS is not compatible with the open source license of the Linux kernel, um, <laughs> which is sort of, I mean... Uh, but uh, ZFS is used on FreeBSD and is great on FreeBSD and it's great on Linux. And actually just recently ZFS, you know, Linux is the sort of first party where ZFS development is happening or ZFS for Linux, but it can't really be bundled with Linux because of the kernel and compatibility. Oracle didn't just want to charge for a ZFS license. 
or Apple's just being Apple because you know you don't get the three trillion dollars if you give Larry Ellison two dollars. <laughs> yeah, Oracle. Uh, Oracle, I think, wants money for it, and uh, Oracle could clear up the licensing issue, but they have very famously sort of not said anything, and so it's kind of a game of chicken. It's like, do they have or does Oracle have? you know proprietary rights or rights that would let them shut this stuff down or you know because it was open source before oracle bought it and this is all based on that you know oracle still has zfs they still maintain zfs they still have their database systems that are running on zfs and there's all kinds of really awesome stuff that oracle is doing with zfs as a commercial thing so oracle benefits from the open source zfs project but oracle also kind of still wants to cut and that was the thing to apple is basically we're going to come after you because we can uh, if you include ZFS in your stuff. So it's also really easy to get ZFS working on Mac stuff, but nobody ever does. But they should because ZFS is awesome. It, it just can't, yeah. I, I It's funny because the thing that still kills me is there's, I mean, heck, I haven't tried the latest version, but there's no NTFS support in Mac OS either, you know, like natively because obviously it's a Microsoft file yeah. system. But like, come on, it's like, what, 50 cents or something? I'm sure it's really... <laughs> And it's just so inconvenient to put a you know mount uh, NTFS drive on on Mac OS and like doesn't work. Got to go buy yeah. whatever third party. Yeah, yeah, it's really they're frustrating. just cheap. I think Apple. I don't know what they're doing. I think there's like some Uncle Scrooge safe at the bottom of Apple. It's like trillions of dollars, and they just go surf <laughs> on the money pets. Because like, come on, just pay for some of this stuff. Yeah, eventually the patents will expire. So it's that's a fun other sort of side conversation. Is like copyrights are forever, but patents are only twenty years. So if they, Microsoft patents NTFS, then in twenty years you can use whatever's in the patent for NTFS, right? But if you don't patent it and it's copyrighted, does it last forever? Ooh, <laughs> you know, you know what's interesting? I, I didn't realize. I think the original Ace Tech patents on a lot of the coolers are. They're coming right up. They're going to expire very soon, I think. They're about 20 years ago. Because I was looking yeah. up the patents on the on modular power supplies, and Tiger Direct um, co-owner UltraX Products had the patent on modular power supplies, but when he went to federal prison, I guess oh. they kind of they stopped collecting them, and nobody's collected those for forever. Mm. So. That that's pretty interesting. I you know I have a question though that's actually related to this is interesting. I'm going to ask Wendell because so this person on Twitter I've been talking to, uh, I want to build a computer. I want to build a computer for rendering and walkthrough video making and editing. Um, it needs to be more more durable and sustainability for about eight to ten years, and it could constantly work twenty four seven twenty four hours seven days a week. Um, I'm a, an architect, civil engineer. And the budget is three thousand um, dollars, in in or or uh, in, in this is a, in the Indian market. And applications are uh, AutoCAD, uh, Autodesk, Rivet, uh, Google Stack, SketchUp, 3ds Max, uh, Lumion Render Engine, Corona Render, V-Ray Render, Photoshop, Twin Motion, etc. I was mm. originally I was because I didn't know what apps he was going to run. I was saying generally people optimize for intel i recommend an intel generally even though you get more bang for the buck still in in multi-core for an amd but i thought but seeing that mix up i still feels like maybe intel but honestly with a three thousand dollar budget i kind of think 5900 59 5950 x 
Yeah, a 5950X would run all that really well. Uh, most of the budget is probably going to go to the GPU. He's probably going to need to get a Quadro. Yeah, that's um, another question. Yeah, yeah I, Revit and all the Autodesk products. Like uh, Autodesk makes a list of GPUs, and you should never deviate from that list. They will punish you constantly <laughs> from that if you deviate. So, do you think uh, they do that because they know if it doesn't work? They can't have NVIDIA and AMD coming in with the cards and like, oh, you need to pay certification for this. How much is that? 15K? I don't know how much it is, but it's, you know, it's a check. For- yeah. Yeah. It's a, it really, and the drivers too, because NVIDIA is, uh, you know, they'll change something in the driver. They'll change to how something works. And then all of a sudden, you know, Revit is not rendering wall textures correctly anymore or anything like that. And um, those, it's, he will be hard. Uh, a quadro lasting a decade? Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, one of the, the, the bang for your buck in terms of like quadro values, usually around like the $1,500 mark, which doesn't leave a lot of budget for the rest of the system. Yeah. And, and definitely some of the things he's using is somewhat thread heavy, but, you yeah. know, it feels like he also needs high core count. So Threadripper is not even, you know, possible, I think, in that in that budget. No, not if he needs a quadro for sure. You know, and originally I was saying if you really are looking at twenty four seven, you really should go with a commercially built workstation, right? That's yep. been engineered. That's my feeling. Rather than try to DIY it yourself. Hey, we got Falcon Northwest in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you're saying fifteen hundred dollar quadro, and then probably whatever else you can fit in there. Probably that twelve yeah. core. Honestly, that fifty nine hundred X twelve cores pretty killer yeah. deal i think so yeah he could run depending on the motherboard that he got he could also run uh, ecc unregistered ecc memory in the in the desktop machine that might also help those will correct single bit errors and they'll supposedly report two-bit errors but it won't shut the machine down in a case of a two-bit error for the for the non-registered ecc mm-hmm. are you now are you an ecc person <laughs> Because, I mean, I, you know, the ECC people are like, if you're not an ECC person, you're a loser. And I'm going to yell at you for five minutes on the internet. That's what I've noticed. No, I like ECC. I do run ECC in my Threadripper machine, registered ECC now, but in the in the old days. Um, but, yeah, it, it when you have a machine that's on 24-7, I mean, with Windows, it doesn't matter. You're going to be rebooting all the time anyway. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, that's true. But, <laughs> but uh, with the... Uh, you know, with error correcting memory, you'd be surprised how often errors occur, especially when you have, you know, like 256 or 512 gigabytes of memory. I mean, you you will see a couple of bit flips a year normally. And, you know, most of the time it doesn't matter. Like, oh, the, this pixel and this bitmap is just a slightly different shade of gray or sh- slightly different shade of blue. You know, who cares? But sometimes it, it will cause a program to crash or, you know, some other kind of issue or a blue screen or, or whatever. Um, but it's nice to have the it's nice to have that feedback. Yeah, especially if you're talking about 24 seven operation and rendering and stuff. Yeah, no, that's that's true. You know, it's it, just a side note because I at um, there's a there's a gosh I can't remember it's it's, it's near Lawrence Berkeley Lab. There's like a it's the you know, it's for kids. You know, you go see, but they have this cool uh, display that has this kind of cloudy substance. And you can watch these things whizzing through it all the time. And they're just like, what are these little lines crossing? And it's only about, you know, 12 inches by 12 inches. And all these lines are crossing through this cloudy substance. It's like, oh, this is our demo that shows you cosmic rays just passing through. The- <laughs> oh, yeah. So those cosmic yeah. rays are passing through everything, as we know from Fantastic Four. 
and they're also <laughs> passing through your memory and you know yep. right so i mean but yeah. i was i was just surprised like in just a little tiny thing they were just like constantly just kind of whizzing through it's like okay i i guess i could see it but i yeah. my argument has been you know 20 billion non-ecc computers it's fine but you're right maybe <laughs> that's obscured by windows because you're always you reboot you know every few days anyway so yeah if, and if the you know some of the some of those autodesk programs you can actually resume you can pause and resume the render so you know you can get a checkpoint because it knows that i mean autodesk knows that some of those things will take a really long time so if you have that kind of functionality, it's definitely less, it's definitely less critical. Um, I think it's also interesting too, that as the speeds have gone up, the need for more and more and more levels of built-in error correction have increased dramatically. Like where we are now, even with desktop CPUs, you know, the cache does have error correction built into it, even in desktop CPUs, because stuff happens. And, um, uh, we do have error correction built in and on DDR five, the, uh, communications interface now has built in DDR five. Even if you're not running error correcting memory, the memory will detect if an error occurred in transmission between CPU and memory or between memory or between C between CPU and memory or between memory and CPU. It doesn't, the, you still have the option of error correcting DDR five, meaning that you have an extra memory chip and redundancy information is stored on the extra memory chip to detect corruption that occurs at rest, but in transmission, which is where most of it occurs, um, it will detect that now with uh, you just regular old desktop DDR5 pretty much needs to have that because otherwise errors, errors creep in at a rate that it causes stability issues. Well, let me tell you the rate. We got Dr. Ian Cutchers from Tech Tech Potato in here. He says uh, it's, it's one error per gigabyte per year means 512 errors a year with a 512 gigabyte system or two errors per day. Two errors a day. That's nothing. I'm not getting two errors per day in reality, but, but it is, you know, probably, you know, three, four, five a year. All right, you know, I, I, I'm sorry because I know the audience has questions. I have another question because this is like this is this has been a joke I've had for a long time, and I want to know what you think about it. Is it true? Now, my argument for for why Windows is so awesome is it can withstand corruption. Like, so if you took a, a Mac, if you took a, a Linux build and a Windows build, and you just pulled the power, you booted up in the OS, you started something up, and you pulled the power. Like, if you did that 30 times, I bet at the end of 30 times, Windows would be perfectly fine. Whereas <laughs> Linux and Mac OS would have, like, you would have corrupted something. Do you agree? My, think, you want to hear the ra rationale why? Because Windows is just basically built to to withstand crashing more because built to crash it's like you know what it's like you your immune system it's like we crash so much we've you know it's like i mean really because how many times have you pulled the power in a windows box you don't really like oh my god i need to clench up for this because it might not come back i don't like i don't even worry about that I've, I've done that unfortunately i've done it like 50 times it's so rare but it, okay yeah Am i, I crazy know. well i that uh that ssd that i recovered was uh re-fs and uh which is supposed to detect corruption, and it didn't detect any corruption at all. <laughs> and there was lots of corruption on that that, that recovery. I did was not perfect. Yeah, but Windows but, uh, runs even with the corruption. That's the beauty. <laughs> it does. Uh, James Pryor says we need to run this experiment live. Uh, yeah, that so would be fun. Live stream. <laughs> old, old Linux, EXT, the old EXT operating system, you, you are exactly right. It was, you know, a bunch of unclean shutdowns in a row would cause a lot of problems. It's better today than it was historically. Um, 
we uh we have journaled metadata now like ntfs that was the secret you know when ntfs first launched that it actually had some journaling capabilities and you know fat didn't have that and if you had windows 95 or 98 and you unplugged it 20 times oh you were gonna have some problems there too but uh, uh that's not the case anymore not really well you has a good question uh what if your corruption algorithms gets corrupted <laughs> you should have had ecc, should have had ECC. That's, there you go. that's not what problem that solves <laughs> Uh, uh, real quick, uh, uh, Tech Three Sixty Gamer uh, asks: uh, Is ECC needed for something like Unraid? Would you no, it's. I mean, you know, if your home server, if it, 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 no, that's fine. The most important thing for a home server is that you've got at least a, a RAID One mirror going, or like RAID Five or Six. That's a really interesting conversation, is because as drive capacities have gone up, the transfer rate has not gone up. So on a modern, you know, 16, 18, 20 terabyte mechanical hard drive, if you want to copy all 20 terabytes off that hard drive, that's going to take like a day or two. <laughs> yeah, that is sad, okay. isn't it? You, I don't, is it just, they've just given up? Like, they just don't care. But it feels like with a density at that, you could, well, I guess you're still not even, you know, you're not even getting over 600 megs off that disk. But It's disappointing. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> or you can add more read write heads, but I haven't seen those in the wild. Yeah. Uh, we got a twenty dollars super chat from uh, Oleg Ostash. Thank you so much. Uh, said, "Love the show." Uh, a quick question: Should we expect ATX three point PSUs to be released around the time that the next gen GPUs are released? I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say because MSI has already showed off an ATX 3.0 multi-rail power supply, you know, if they're already putting it on their website, then it's it's imminent, and we got new graphics cards coming out. So I'm going to have to have a new breaker in my house. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't because I mean that was most my concern with this is like it sounds like oh this thing is going to you know it'll, it's going to spike up to 1800 watts, but it's all contained within the capacitance of the PSU. So it never mm. gets outside. So that's the theory. Anyway, we're going to find out. Interesting. We're going to find out in my 1930s house, I guess. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, a question from uh, Dr. Ian Cutris, uh, tech tech potato said uh, money, no object. Would you rather have a 7950 X or a 5950 WX? I'm sorry. 5995 WX. Oh, probably 5995. For sure. If money's no object, yeah. Two terabytes of RAM. Hello. Gordon. <sighs> Give me the model numbers again. Uh, 7950X, so the you know top end Ryzen 7000, or a 5995WX. Yeah, I would have to do 7950X for me because it's just not... I don't... I run Windows. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to... 512 gigs of RAM, it's just like... <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to bag on the Windows, Windows folks, but, you know, it's just not fine. It's normal consumers, normal consumer workload for what I do, higher clocks, you know, across most cores is, is going to be more valuable. Plus all the other, it's just. I'll rent time on the 59.95 so that I can buy the 79.50 as well. <laughs> so he would drive an 18-wheeler or something like that. I'm perfectly fine in a F-150. It's just not. And honestly, you know, that's that's probably a good analogy because it's insane for somebody to, to you know, have a big old box like that. To- yeah. 
Well, that was the surprising thing with the 32 core that I have is that when you let it, it really will consume like four or 500 Watts and it hasn't had any stability issues or anything. And, um, it's been really, really nice Been warming uh, up your house. Yeah. I mean, but you know, also <laughs> it's kind of scary that, okay. He's like, oops, we probably should have designed the socket to allow even more power. I mean, it's on the other side of the bathtub curve of efficiency. That extra hundred Watts is not getting me a hundred Watts worth of performance, but hmm. it's neat. Uh, question, uh, over on the discord from a uh, friend of the show, master procrastinator. It's a NAS question. Uh, just like me, my Synology DS two twelve plus is getting old. Uh, I think I have a four twelve plus personally. Um, uh, and it can't run Plex. Should I go with a new Synology NAS one that does run Plex or try DIY? Uh, I'm in the, the EU and power usage slash cost is a big factor. So leaning towards Synology. Yeah. I mean, that is a that is a cheap option that is low power um i think that uh probably in another generation or two of raspberry pi for something like that you may be able to do it with a ras like the whatever like the latte panda version of a nas and then it'll be super low power <laughs> diy low cost but also ridiculous horsepower because the the latte panda uh system right now the cpu is on par with what you get from the synology maybe slightly better um but for what synology gives you it's it's pretty good it's just that if it ever dies you have to buy the other the the you know and then move your discs over so it's not easy to diy recover just the discs without the chassis Hmm. okay uh, they have a bonus side question. Uh, what if they want to get into home automation as well and run something like that? Uh, would a, a Synology NAS be an option or should they do a Raspberry Pi? So I use Home Assistant and Home Assistant works perfectly fine on Synology or anything else. You can run it under Docker. You can run it in a virtual machine. It'll run in a really tiny virtual machine. But Home Assistant is really cool. And also based on Linux. <laughs> there you go. Uh, friend of the show, CauseMC asks, uh, Wendell, any regrets or need to add to the forbidden router? Long-term usage thoughts on TrueNAS scale versus Unraid? Like, so questions. far, I'm really happy with the forbidden router. I'm really, really, really happy with it. I'm actually doing some tuning right now to try to see if I can saturate 25 gigabit with my Steam cache. Wait, can you tell us what this is? I'm, I'm not familiar. So the forbidden router is I'm running a an epic system. I'm, prob- I'm going to show how to do this less expensive with uh alder lake and the w680 stuff but i'm running an eight core epic one of the f series eight core epics for my router at home and it's got 64 gigabytes of memory and 420 terabyte hard drives and so it's a combination nas plus Uh, home automation plus router plus other stuff and they're all compartmentalized virtual machines Wow. So I'm running PFSense as a virtual machine, which is the forbidden part. You're not supposed to run a, a, a router as a virtual machine, but I'm passing through a physical hard drive. So if, and, a, and physical NICs. So if something dies or this overly elaborate contraption dies and cause you never want your, your router to die, you can just reboot and pick the other device to boot from and it'll boot the router operating system on bare metal instead of under a hypervisor. Uh, and it will, I can continue to have a router while I sort of troubleshoot the problem and figure out, uh, figure out what, what the issue is. <laughs> okay. Wow. Crazy. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun having a single appliance do that. Plus also I got all the power management stuff figured out and it'll only, it'll idles at about 
25 or 30 watts now. We did the same experiment with a 12. I've got a 12 400, which is six Alder Lake P cores on a W680 super micro motherboard. And that thing will idle at about six watts. And so I think that might be a good platform that also doesn't cost thousands of dollars for a DIY forbidden router. And the performance on that is really, really good because those Alder Lake P cores with the high clocks are great for embedded appliances like that. So if you've got like a 10 gig home LAN or your internet connection is faster than a gigabit, DIYing the router, even though it's a couple hundred bucks, is probably cheaper than a commercial router that can handle more than one gigabit. And uh, you get a lot of features with it. I imagine the performance is even better, too, in some ways. Yeah. So. yeah. It, it, it's, um, it turns out, you know, even just gigabit, like shuffling a gigabit worth of packets around, if you do that with a general purpose CPU, it's wildly inefficient. But if you have, you know, an ARM CPU that's designed to move packets, you don't really need very much. So it's sort of, it's hard to do the apples to apples comparison because you look at a router and it's like, well, this router, you know, the, the specs kind of suck, but it's got physical hardware that's just designed to just lift and shift packets from A to B. And so that is actually really fast. Yeah, and no, I'm actually thinking I should build one for home because I have 10 gig and it's really hard to find a router that has all the, it, to fit all my needs because I, I need more ports in an affordable level and it's not there's just yeah, forbidden router may be in your future oh <laughs> man look at that <laughs> the uh the low cost option really is the alder lake though like the and the, you know the mind-blowing thing intel supports error correcting i know it probably doesn't matter but they support error correcting with like the 12 the the i7 and the i9 even the k parts if you have a w680 cpu historically they would let you run ECC on like the i3 and the Pentium, but not the i5 or anything beyond. It's the opposite with the W680. There's no ECC for the 12400 on Intel Arc. But if you run the W680 with the 12700K or the 12900K, you get ECC. What is the rationale for that? I mean, different teams, somebody didn't f- click the box. <laughs> I don't well, know. We, it makes we, no we sense. checked the wrong box, Marks. <laughs> Really, uh, I really, I, I really wish the twelve four hundred. I haven't confirmed that the twelve four hundred doesn't support ECC, but it says that it doesn't on uh, Arc, which is so strange. And the twelve four hundred with six Alder Lake P cores as a ten gigabit router and with lots of ports. Yeah, no, I mean that's been nice. Although the the only I don't, but you're actually getting down to a six watt idle. Like, yeah, what the heck? So you're yeah, obviously that, using IGP. It's headless. So yeah, yeah. It's not even the IGPU. It's the uh, A Speed twenty five hundred. And most of the most of the idle wattage is the uh, the A Speed twenty five hundred and and uh, the um, NICs. It's not even the CPU. The CPU is basically halted. It's using hardly any power. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, James, Breyer, friend of the show, James Breyer says uh, that should be Gordon's first Linux build, the Forbidden Router. There we go. See, <laughs> see, you do have a, a need for Linux, Gordon. There you no, go. I, I, I'm gonna. D- I have the tab open to download Pop OS right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, a couple more, then we get out of here. Um, Master Procrastinator, friend of the show. Uh, uh, what would it take for ARM to gain ground with Windows PCs? It seems to work uh, for smartphones and Macs, but C- PC seems to be stuck in x86. Will it be forever? How long will it take? See, that's the thing that blew my mind. You know, the Surface X? Oh, this is this is a good question for you guys. 
So the Surface X was ARM. How did Microsoft blow that? They beat Apple to the punch on ARM. Why was it such a disaster? Windows, they recompiled Windows for ARM. ARM is good. Like ARM is actually, you look at Amazon and Graviton and what the cloud providers are doing with ARM. Intel and AMD should both be worried. I mean, they really should be worried in the server you know, arena in terms of ARM. And the M1 is objectively very good. How... How did Microsoft screw that up so bad with ARM on the window on the Surface? They well, I mean, because it just it just sucked on legacy. I mean, you know, that's the problem is you have a legacy, you know, you know tens of hundreds of thousands of applications for x eighty six. And honestly, if you if you actually want to go back further, Surface RT. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> Surface RT was like. I know it's Windows. People don't know Surface RT was basically the original Surface. They made an x86 one that was kind of fugly in how thick it was. And then the original RT was felt and it was designed to take on the iPad. It ran on ARM. It ran Windows 8. Yeah, Windows 8 UI, but it ran on ARM. And it ran it was, nothing it, that ran on Windows. It was slow and garbage. It was just so it could if it was immediate and fast and amazing, it would have been fine, but it wasn't. Well, and then the crazy and, you know, to get into the I mean, they made this mistake with the original RT because it's like, oh, you have this this entirely beautiful Windows OS interface, except when you go into Microsoft Office. What? <laughs> yeah, if yeah. We have a desktop mode only for office. It's like, what are that doesn't how does that, you know, <laughs> yeah, they just they yeah. didn't have the pieces lined up. And, you know, if you think about it, that was RT back then. And then. Surface X was a, a repeat. It just because it it just people. There's always somebody's going to run some old POS software, and Microsoft can't make people update that software for ARM. They can't make well, them recompile it. I think right. Yeah, but you got to look at what Apple did with the M1. So Apple is kind of. I mean, Apple's got a, okay. They've got a stranglehold on the software, and they can just dictate what people do. Granted, that's but, the difference. But the M1 also had a lot of stuff added to it to be able to better do x86 translation. That's why at first it only supported 32-bit translation is because the stuff they added was basically useless for a 64-bit address space. And that hardware that Rosetta was able to access is really why the translation experience wasn't a complete crap show on... Um, on the on the Apple side, and I wonder if that's because Apple was willing to take a chance on getting sued over you know misappropriating an instruction set or something, whereas Intel wasn't or uh, Microsoft wasn't versus Intel. I don't know. I mean, I I know definitely from a consumer point of view, there is no way in hell I would ever have recommended ninety nine percent people buy a Surface X because it was just so such a bad. Yeah. experience and i think that's fundamentally the reason why is because the original m1 came out i really didn't expect it to be as good as it was and it really performed really well it, it was quite usable right and that i think that was a big difference because like surface pro x is like oh and then yeah and also yeah. before surface pro x i tried a couple you know arm-based you know people they've been pushing arm for a long time and every time it's just like oh it's really great in the native apps but you get into that emulation and it, it just sucked it just sucked so yeah and i yeah, think very very true but i mean i kind of think microsoft is trying to fix that by like you know what everybody's going to get their ass into the microsoft store because when you get <laughs> in the microsoft store by the way you're going to recompile it for x86 and recomp recompile for 
for ARM, right? So I think that's the long-term road. I feel like the long-term road plan is to get everybody into store more secure and not, you know, x86 only. I mean, do you think that? I mean, it feels like because Apple, the thing about Apple, I think that it made M1 so... I had no problem saying you should buy the M1 because it's the future because you know Apple is going to, if you're a developer, it's like, we're never going to do a version for you. Fine, we're going to kill you, right? They're just like, they will have no problem coming to snuff you out if you're not on board with it. So Microsoft doesn't have that same, you know, iron-fisted hold over the entire, even though yeah. people say they do, they don't. They still are trying to hurt people. Apple really does like, you're going to get in a line or else. And that, to me, is the, the differences. So they can, I mean, hell, they survived how many... How many transitions? PowerPC, ARM, x86. There's probably oh yeah, Motorola. I mean, I, I so if I if if I was Satya Nadella, I would be on the phone with uh, with Lisa Sue and whoever's in charge of Qualcomm, saying, "How can we get? We need a chiplet where it's half ARM and half x86. Let's make this work." Hmm. <laughs> you know, they have the license for it. Yeah, huh? <laughs> but you know, I I guess the. the, the the hope I see is for ARM is everybody keeps saying Qualcomm and the uh, Nuvia purchase, right? So they're, it's yeah, going to be yeah. better. It's gonna That's going to fix it. They're going to be just like everybody's promising M1 like performance, you know, and honestly, I'll believe it when I see it because, you know, you, after a while of being let down by ARM on Windows so many times, it's like, okay, whatever, you know. Well, after a while, too. You know, you're you're back to the same problem we talked about with the Windows and the scheduler, where there's a lot of stuff in there that is purpose built for quirks of x86. And I thought, you know, a big part of the push with windows eight and surface RT was like, ah, let's remove a lot of this cruft. Let's do away with a lot of our application compatibility, even on x86 desktop, windows (laughs) eight introduced a lot of things that made some of those legacy applications not work really well. And, you know, now we're going to be in a situation where the only company that could do that, if they really want to, is is Microsoft to bridge the whole ARM x86 side of things. But it's only because they're going to have to double down on Windows and how it runs and how it's built and the application ecosystem and blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, maybe that that really will be the thing that propels Linux into the forefront. Some company comes along and says, we're going to build a reasonable Linux front end experience like Valve has done with the Steam Deck. And then that becomes, you know, something to supplant Windows or be able to run Windows uh, applications in a legacy kind of way. The kind of the way that Proton runs Windows games under Linux is completely unholy. And I never would have thought that that would be a thing. And uh, but it actually works reasonably well now that they've poured tens of millions of dollars into <laughs> pretending to be Windows. Um, and I think we're going to see some kind of thing like that. We have to on desktop to get where we need to be in terms of efficiency and competitive desktop experience and applications and everything else. But do you think though, I mean, I know people view, you know, arm very brightly, but I've heard that many, many times before. I kind of think like, and it always takes like these sort of challenges to make Intel and AMD like, Oh, we need to, you know, now it feels like they're like, okay, we have to now address efficiency again, you know? So, I feel what? like the solution is that Microsoft's going to do this and then Intel's going to go, hey, actually, we're just sufficient and faster, you know, and then. I'm I'm 100% with you, except that what changed my mind, or I was 100% with you because it's like, you know, x86, there's no way, by the time ARM becomes complicated enough to do everything that x86 does, it's going to have all the cruft that x86 does. <laughs> and so we've, it's, a, it's a push. But the thing that changed my mind on that is Amazon and Graviton and how good those are. 
So doing the software development side of things and doing pushing stuff up to server and deploying like Linux applications and working with Graviton versus x86 in terms of like raw single thread performance. Yeah, Graviton's not quite there yet, even with their very newest generation stuff. But it is so close. It is so close, even to third generation uh, Epic Milan in uh, Amazon's cloud, and the cost is so much less that it it would I would be a little bit worried. Um, and I, maybe that'll trickle down into the desktop world. Maybe not. But at least in the server world, it's kind of already being disruptive. It's sort of a stealth disruption, I think. Huh. <laughs> limited only by even more limited volume and the fact that, you know, Amazon doesn't want to let go of the special sauce necessarily. So it's going to be up to other companies like Nuvia to say, no, we're the special sauce vendor. It's not something internal purely to Amazon. It is a crazy future to see that 10 to 15 years from now, Intel Foundry Services will basically build all of its competitor, all of the competitive chips that could potentially, and we, obviously I'm not in that camp, it could potentially kill x86. Right. Yeah. I mean, they'll be building our, they'll be building Apple, Amazon, Google, everybody's chips down the road, right? It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a really interesting future. And I think also the fact that modern chips are probably going to mix a lot of process nodes. Yeah. So in, in 10 years, that, that chip that they're building is going to have 10 years worth of lithographies on it. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the legacy uh, x86 core? That'll be, I, I just don't, I mean, obviously we're, I'm saying that, but I don't believe that. I, I am a firm believer in what the PC has accomplished in. I, I think it's up for the challenges. So I'm not, not, I don't want people to think like I'm giving up here. I, I think, Hey, you know what? Bring it, you know, competition's good. We'll see. Right. We'll see. I like X86. I just, I worry about it. I, I worry, I worry about a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, we've, we've been here before though. I mean, it feels like everybody's always worried about, about everybody worries about everything. So, and then at the yeah. same time, yeah, I mean, the Graviton thing is interesting. We'll I guess I worry about um the uh, the I remember the last time you remember um Crusoe very long instruction <laughs> word is going to save us and it was like oh that didn't work out exactly you know the funny thing is I mean the ancient history days like because I I the funny thing is Crusoe did actually kind of save Intel in a lot of ways because yeah because like it, they in the monkey's paw way <laughs> yeah because they ended up like oh we got to do P three we need to do these Pentium three efficiency cores because. Like just oh well, Pentium four is a future, but we need an efficiency thing to fight off. I mean, that's the way I remember. It. I might be wrong, but like no, yeah, no, Pentium that's three, exactly right? right? Yeah. yeah. And I will say, those Crusoe chips, man, the hype was because they were slow. <laughs> they were just slow. They were. They used hardly any power, but they were very slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, you got to figure like, well, the total power you use because it took you 25 minutes to do something. It took you 10 seconds. The other one, maybe that ends up. <laughs> I've got um, I've got a palm top that's based on an 80186 from Intel. And it, you can run it for 40 hours on two AA batteries. Whoa. And uh, and every time we go to an event where like Intel is going to be there, I try to bring it with me so that if I can get some engineer time, it's like, how do we get back to this? This is <laughs> this is 10 megahertz. <laughs> 40 hours of power on time from two AA batteries. And they just look at it. I was like, well, we have the ultra low voltage X86. And I was like, yeah, but on two AA batteries, it's going to last about 20 minutes. 
Nice. <laughs> this is what we need. This is the level of efficiency we need. That's like M1 levels of efficiency. <laughs> that would be cool. A uh, couple more. We're gonna. <laughs> I'm just. I got to read this. Ian wants a 128 core, uh, e core, e core CPU. Yeah, of course he does. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a market for that in embedded yeah. and and like you know for like a home server or a home NAS that can do literally anything. I mean, you talk about doing home security if you have some cameras to do image recognition and that kind of thing, and you know DVR transcoding and you know, uh, security system sensor monitoring and, you know, you don't even need 128 e-course for that, but it would be cool. Nice. A uh, couple more, uh, then we'll get out of here. We had a couple people asking uh, if we're going to stream or, or what we're going to do with the, the AMD event. Uh, we're talking about, we'll figure it out. Uh, we'll, we'll let everyone know on Discord. Uh, but friend of the show, Pyrocumulus, asks, uh, what, were, what will Dr. Lisa Sue's one more thing announcement be? Should we pre-order it now? Huh. Threadripper related? I kind of doubt it. Steam Deck 2. Oh, yeah. Well, no. Yeah, but Valve would want that. Mm. I'm thinking GPU. Maybe GPU related. Bust out in GPU. Because, I mean, they've already sort of... I mean, there have been so many leaks and they've already tar- talked about what's coming. Yeah. What do you, What's the wow? GPU seems likely. Or yeah, at least a tease, something something GPU tease. The GPU could be the wow if the next generation of RDNA is there, you know, is an even bigger bump versus RDNA two. Do you expect well, and then I guess you know because the thing is you do it before Nvidia launches. Yeah, you just drop because you know you get the you get the mic drop before Nvidia launches. But the funny thing is, and I guess apparently Intel had its launch for a 13th gen, and then AMD basically you know jumps on top of it and you can see like oh if they're gonna do a gpu then nvidia is like like they're gonna (laughs) they're all gonna stream at the same time in order to mess with you so you can't see it but no (laughs) we gotta distract from the distraction because the other distraction (laughs) yeah uh we just got a five uh canadian dollar super chat from uh kofi thank you so much uh says i know gordon doesn't like pandas or lawyers uh, I prefer not to say which group they belong to, but are they still allowed to watch the show? They they are. I and I don't dislike lawyers. I actually like honestly like you you, you when you when you have a problem with someone you hate lawyers, and when you have a problem you want the best lawyer in the universe. Uh, lawyers are awesome. I know many many very good attorneys, but let's face it, you know it. Lawyers are the no fun police at every single company. Because like, oh, let's do something fun. Lawyers like, oh, but wait, exposure here, exposure here. <laughs> you're no fun. No one. That's why when you're like, hey, what do you want? What are you guys doing for lunch? Oh, we already got lunch. Yeah, because you know once you killing the buzz, because that's what lawyers do. Your job is to kill the buzz. So that's that's your job. I'm sorry. And the panda thing is because they should not exist in. They essentially, and I believe in evolution, generally, but pandas prove evolution. Does not actually exist. <laughs> you ever hear my theory about you know pandas oh, no. eat like fifty oh. pounds of bamboo a day wow, to survive, that's a lot. and they procreate like once every five or six years, ten years or something like that. They're selfish. They so want like, bamboo for themselves. They eat. They they wake up. They eat bamboo all day, and then they go to sleep, and then they make a kid every like ten years. 
Hmm. How in the world does that like show of evolution is even real? Because like <laughs> pandas, we should have just been in the fossil record from like a million years ago. They shouldn't exist. Well, we get to We get to see this. You know, odds are we'll see at least one or two dead ends in our existence. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I just there's like no reason for pandas to be here. It just doesn't uh, does yeah. not make. We need sense. we need a shirt. Uh, Gordon hates pandas. Think, like maybe, maybe the, a panda and like a big like no symbol on it or something. Wouldn't yeah. the panda and they only eat bamboo? Like <clears throat> like maybe eat some grass or some hay or like oh look a, a chipmunk eat that or something. But no, it's like. 50 like i think it's like it's body weight or something it's insane is it, so yeah. there's no okay. so no i don't know. uh you know what isn't insane uh is is how cool wendell is i, I did a uh i did a poll here on, on youtube i always forget to do polls so i decided to do a poll uh 59 votes uh between how cool is wendell is is he cool or is he super cool uh cool came came in at 20 percent. super cool came in at 79 percent. there you go Wendell is, is super hey. cool officially. Uh, <laughs> our, our chat has decided it. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going to, the last question, and I'm, I'm going to put a poll in here so we can get uh, everybody's reaction uh, from friend of the show, Maki. Uh, pineapple, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Only with ECC RAM. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really a big fan of pineapple on pizza. It can be okay. I've had pizzas where the pineapple was okay, but... I'm I'm a meat lovers kind of pizza, and then pineapple's not good on that. I might do a one third pineapple with the meat lovers because yeah, the meat lover you can't. Be. Or you could do ham, ham pineapple. It's Canadian bacon and and uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, see, I I think uh, I've I've had uh, pineapple with just uh, tomato sauce, like like no cheese. It's just a pizza with just like dough, pasta, you know, tomato sauce and pineapple, and that was not bad. It's you know, I don't know if it's a pizza, but yeah. I think the one the, the one that I had was with ham and a couple other things, but it was I don't think it had pepperoni. I think it was kind of like yours with just just tomato sauce. Yeah, see and pineapple it, without the Canadian bacon. Yeah, yeah, no, no with have, ham. Yeah, mine had ham. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I I, th- I think it's the cheese that kind of makes it weird for me. Yeah, but uh, well, the the poll we got a, almost a hundred votes. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it go for a minute. Uh, I'm very surprised. Fifty-one uh, percent said yes, yum. Sixteen uh, percent said no. Twenty-two uh, percent said hell no, and eleven percent said really. Who does that? So <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you add all those up, it's it's you know closer to fifty-fifty than I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be overwhelmingly no, but huh, all right, crazy. Oh, Don Draper says uh, pineapple and anchovies. All right. Well, we need to get out of here. <laughs> no. Now I'm not hungry. <laughs> yeah. Please no. <laughs> discussion means it's time for lunch. Yep. All right. Uh, Gordon, uh, get us out of here. Get us check, out of here. Uh, check back next week for your fix on, of PC Talk on the Full Nerd for audio listeners. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you're on one of those services, please leave a review every time you do. A panda decides to eat some pineapple <laughs> Hawaiian pizza and then procreates, I think. Oh, oh okay. Send questions and comments to the fullnerd.pcworld.com. Thanks for coming. I'm Gordon Ung with Wendell from Level 1 Text. Please go to their channel, uh, subscribe, and click the bell over there. Awesome stuff. Level 1 Text on YouTube. Thank you for having me.
And Adam Patrick Murray's going to order the uh, pineapple pizza. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, and so good to have you, Wendell. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll definitely have you on again. Maybe uh, if we ever see you in person, we'll, do, we'll catch a, a nice Soon, little video, probably. too. probably. Yeah, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, so see <laughs> thanks. Uh, and uh, thanks, all to you cool kids out there. Uh, we will talk to you later. Goodbye.